Testing one, two, three. Testing one, two, three. This is Radio Free Mormon on the air, broadcasting behind enemy lines. Tonight's episode, the interview with Brian Hauglid. I am very pleased to have Professor Brian Hauglid on my show today to talk about his life, his experience, and especially his scholarship, and perhaps even changing view on the book of Abraham. How are you doing, Professor Hauglid? I am doing great, RFM. Thank you for asking. Well, I'm just so happy that you joined me on the show today. I know my audience has been looking forward to this interview very, very much, as have I. By the way, is it still completely appropriate to call you Professor Hauglid? I guess Professor Emeritus, but uh, you can shorten it to Professor if you want. (laughs) Okay. Well, I only say that because you are recently retired from Brigham Young University. Is that correct? Yes, like uh, July 1st. Of 2020, by the way, for the record and for future generations. Today's date is July 6, 2020. So it's just been, what, uh, a few days since you've officially retired. That's right. Yeah. Which may or may not have something to do with your willingness to come upon my show for an interview. Well, I I would say that, uh, you know, I, I don't plan on saying anything that would be embarrassing to anybody in my department or anything, but I just thought it would be better to wait. So I understand completely. By the way, for those of you who are not familiar with you and your background, I want to do a brief introduction of you, and I'm going to be going off the bio for you that is still posted on the BYU Maxwell Institute webpage. Is that all right? Sure. All right. Brian M. Hauglid. By the way, I am pronouncing that correctly? Yes. Okay is an associate professor, that would be was until recently now, an associate professor at Brigham Young University and a visiting fellow at the Maxwell Institute. He joined BYU's ancient scripture faculty in 1999. Brian completed his PhD at the University of Utah in Arabic and Islamic studies in 1998. He has been a Nibley fellow and he received the BYU Young Scholar Award or I should say the BYU Young Scholar Award, in 2006. He is a member of the Academic Advisory Board for Intermountain West Journal of Religious Studies. He is the former editor of the Journal of Book of Mormon Studies from 2014 to 2017 and co-editor of Studies in the Bible and Antiquity. It then goes on to say a little bit more about you and the Book of Abraham. It characterizes you as an avid researcher on the Book of Abraham. Brian is a co-general editor with John Gee for the studies in the Book of Abraham series, which has produced five volumes, including Traditions About the Early Life of Abraham from 2001, Astronomy, Papyrus, and Covenant 2005, and most recently, A Textual History of the Book of Abraham Manuscripts and Editions 2010. Of course, that does not mention your most recent uh, book in which you were an editor on of the Joseph Smith Studies Project relating to the Book of Abraham. We'll get into that as we go on with this interview. It finally says his, Brian's research interests include the Book of Mormon, the Book of Abraham, the New Testament, Islamic Studies, Interfaith Dialogue, Temple Studies, Documentary Editing, Christian History and Theology, and LDS Church History. So that sounds like you've got quite a few interests of academic pursuit, Professor. Yes, I do. (laughs) Well, I will say that my first meeting 
with you. Of course, I've known your name just sort of peripherally as it's been involved in some of these projects, including that traditions about the early life of Abraham, which I have a copy of here on the desk in front of me that was published in 2001. Uh, but it was not really until Bill Reel and I were doing a three-part series on the book of Abraham about a year and a half ago. It was at the end of 2008 and the beginning of 2019 that we put together those three episodes. And in the middle of those episodes, it turned out that Bill Reel was actually in contact with you and reached out to you to get your input on our episodes and to make some needed corrections. How was it that you got to know Bill Reel, if I may ask? He messaged me uh, earlier on and just started asking me some questions. So we sort of developed a correspondence there. Well, you gave some corrections to what it was that we were saying, and we incorporated those corrections in one of those podcasts. I think it was at the beginning of the third podcast as well. Overall, would you? what was your impression of the, um, the three-series podcast that Bill Reel and I did on the Book of Abraham? Do we get the major points correct? I think so, yeah. It, it, as I recall, uh, I, th I thought as I was listening to it, it, it came out really well. So, yeah. Well, thank you for that. And I want to get your imprimatur of authority on that three-series Book of Abraham podcast, Bill Reel and I did. Number one, just for self-gratification on my part. Number two, because we're not going to cover a lot of that material. We'll touch on some of it, but I want to let the listeners know that if you want an in-depth exploration of the Book of Abraham, building it from the bottom up, please go to those three podcasts. We're going to assume a lot of the knowledge that is contained in those three-part podcast series for purposes of this podcast, but we will get into some details here. So, Professor, here's the deal. You started as a professor of ancient scripture at BYU in 1999. That's a little over 21 years at BYU that you were a professor in that post. Is that right? That's right. And what were your duties as a professor of ancient scripture? Uh, I was given a teaching load. Uh, ancient scripture teaches uh, Book of Mormon, Bible, mostly, and the Pearl of Great Price, of course. So all that is, is sort of uh, framed within antiquity. Yes. Is it fair to say that basically your main job was to teach the institute-level courses to the students at BYU on those subjects? Yeah, yeah, that's fair to say, I think. Uh, same age group there. And at some point, you got involved with FARMS, or the Foundation for Ancient Research in Mormon Studies. Is that right? That's correct. Can you explain how that happened? Sure. Yeah, this is back in the early, very early 90s. My first publication was in 92 or 90, no, I think it was in 94, Temples in the Ancient World, that book. Uh, there was a conference on the on the temple and antiquity, and back in that early period, and uh, so I wrote a paper for that, and it got included in the farms book, the Te temples of the ancient world, that Don Perry and Stephen Ricks edited, and so that was my very first publication, and it was a farms publication. But it was way before I joined uh, with the ancient scripture department, so. What were you doing at that time in your career? I was actually a seminary teacher from 87 
to about 96. And I was working on a master's and a PhD during that period. And so as I, and I was teaching uh, classes during the day and then I'd take classes during the evenings. And it took me about 12 years to get a master's and a PhD up at the University of Utah during that period. And, and then after that, after 96, uh, uh, church education let me work on my PhD for about nine months. And then I went over to the University of Utah Institute and taught there uh, until I went to BYU in 98 and taught there for a year and then was hired in 99. So that's kind of the kind of the way things worked out uh, over those years. Okay, getting back to your association with farms and how that started, did, did that have to do with the book Traditions About the Early Life of Abraham? Yeah, that, that came along a little bit later in 96 when I received a call from John Twetness. And they knew I'd been working on, they meaning John, the two Johns, John Twetness and John Gee, who were the, the, the uh, I guess, the lead editors for that book, Traditions in the Book of Abraham. Um, and I received a call and asked if I could do some work on some of the Arabic sources that they had uh, found. And so I said, sure, yeah, that'd be great. And I was still working on my PhD. I, I got that in 98, so it was before receiving it. But uh, I spent time going over uh, some of the sources, and I did enough of them that they invited me to be part of the three, part of three editors instead of two, where I was responsible for all of the Arabic and Islamic materials. And so, and that began in 96. Of course, the book wasn't published till, what, 2001, I think? Yes. Um, and so that's, that's kind of how all that started. I'm just up at the library in 96, and I get a call from, from John Twetness, and we started talking. And then that was kind of the beginning of my, my clo closer association with farms, I guess. Uh, even though I was, on, I was on an editorial board from about 92 up to that point with Stephen Ricks as a, uh, on the Journal of Book of Mormon Studies, the very first editor. Uh, and so, so I had already had some contact with him, but, and of course I was reviewing papers for him and doing some things there, but, but really the whole thing really began with John Twetness and John Gee. Well, it's a fascinating connection to me, mainly because that means that you were on the editorial board of the Journal of Book of Mormon Studies at the time that I submitted and had accepted for publication two papers back in the early 90s. Yeah, that would have been. I don't think I reviewed your papers, but yeah, I was on the board then. You probably reviewed the third paper that I submitted because that one was rejected. <laughs> uh. <laughs> What was your view? I mean, you're getting involved. This is this would have been like a dream come true for me at this time to become involved in an official capacity with farms because that was very much a passion of mine at the time. What was your view on being inducted into this August company? Yeah, that it was uh, really something. I mean, I, of course, I was an admirer from from afar from from the beginnings of that, 
And of course, I was so busy with with all my school work that I wasn't able to do a whole lot. But but of course, I looked upon those guys as as being the gods of Mount Olympus, Olympus there a little bit, uh, as far as uh, Mormon scholarship or Mormon studies at that time uh, was concerned. And so, yeah, it was it was for me a major a major deal in my life to be inducted into that whole group. <clears throat> well, I will tell you that farms at the time certainly had a reputation for being an apologetic slash academic group of people. Were you involved in the apologetics as well? And by apologetics, what I mean is this, is that there is uh, academic research going on into certain issues of interest to Mormonism, but there's also a bent to it that simultaneously, I think, seeks to justify, corroborate, and prove true, by which I mean ancient, a lot of the different texts coming forward, and specifically uh, using ancient texts to corroborate and confirm texts that were produced by Joseph Smith, such as the Book of Abraham. Yeah, I, I think, uh, you know, I, I wasn't as consciously, you know, uh, purposeful, I guess, on that at the very beginning. I just felt like, uh, you know, it was such an honor to just be included in, in some of what they were doing there. And so I didn't really critically think about, you know, what exactly they were doing, what their purpose was at the time. Uh, I just felt like it was such a great deal for me to just be included in some of their projects. And I got to know a lot of the people down there very well. Uh, and it was just really for me, it was it was such a collegial thing. And so at the beginning, I really wasn't thinking along those lines as much. Although, of course, I, I became more and more interested in apologetics as time went on. And I wrote, wrote some reviews for, for farms. Uh, and I, I, some of the work that I was producing, especially the, the uh, traditions book, uh, I knew as we were going along, it was becoming very clear to me that it was it was along these apologetic lines where these ancient ancient texts were used to corroborate Joseph Smith's mission as a prophet and so but it wasn't it it was it was a more of a gradual thing as time went on probably over about 5 years i would say uh, that i'm really coming into my own as as an apologist uh, as part of the whole group of apologists. Does that make sense? Yes, I just had an idea. Okay. <laughs> that was a sound effect for my idea. I'm not sure. I think that was on your end, not my end. Yeah, but anyway, sorry. no, that's okay. Um, I don't want to uh, cut you off of any interesting stories, so please throw those in along the way. I'm just going by a basic bare bones outline that okay. I have because in 2010, there was a book, A Textual History of the Book of Abraham, colon, Manuscripts and Editions that you worked on. Would you say that that demonstrated some of your apologetic leanings? Oh, yeah. I think it was certainly influenced by some of my apologetic leanings at the time. I should say that, that on both books, both the Traditions book, well, all three, there's three books that I, I spent a lot of time with, and that's the Traditions book the Astronomy Papyrus book, and then, of course, the Traditions book, which just, just has my name on it. And all three of those books um, 
had an apologetic bent to them. But I was, I, I've, you know, ever since I received, uh, or when I was in graduate school, uh, I was trained to be as an objective scholar as possible. You're, you can't be perfect at that, of course. Your biases are going to come through. But, but I tried to be as objective as I possibly could. And especially with the traditions book and the uh, textual history book, I was pressured in some, on some occasions to be more apologetic. And I, re, I was resistant to that. I pushed back on some of that, that uh, uh, what they were trying to have me do there. And let me give you an example. Um, so we, we, for the traditions book, we have all these in the back of the book, we have all these elements, these ancient elements of the book of Abraham that we see paralleled in, in some of these sources that are dated. A lot of the sources are ancient and Joe Smith wouldn't have known about it. And so it's the, the apologetic part of that, of course, is Joseph couldn't have known this. That's the whole idea behind it. Um, and, and these elements, I think there's about 40 of them or something, these ancient elements uh, like Abraham being sacrificed or there's priesthood things. There's, you know, I don't have the book in front of me, but, but just a, a, you know, a list of these elements that we felt were present in these texts, but Joseph Smith couldn't have known about them. He couldn't have known about these texts. And some, some, you know, there, there were on occasion, some elements that were in there that I felt were super weak. And I, sorry, but I can't remember them all anymore because this is a long time ago, almost 20 years ago. Well, it is 20 years ago that, that they were, John, the, both the Johns were kind of asking to put, put in some of these, and I just resisted that. Uh, of course, I was the junior of the three, and so they got in what they basically wanted. But, but I noticed at that time, even in the early 2000s, that or late 1990s, I guess I should say, uh, that I'm kind of rubbing up against some of that apologetic uh, spirit there. And, and when I put out my book, the, or the textual history book, it was, there was quite a bit of pushback on that. Now, on that one, John Twetness didn't have anything to do with that. But, of course, John Gee was a reviewer since he was the co-edit series editor. And, of course, John was trying to get me to be much more apologetic. He wanted me to go more of the Skousen route on the... When you say Skousen, do you mean Royal or Cleon? I mean, yeah, I mean Royal Skousen. <laughs> On his on his uh, critical edition of the Book of Mormon, and I had I had concerns about Royal's approach, and so I didn't really want to do that. I wanted to to I guess I wanted to simplify things a little bit more and try to to reach a, a bigger audience than Royal was trying to reach. But I wanted it to be based on really good, solid work, of course, and and so John was not really happy with that book all the way through. Uh, but I, I was pretty insistent by that point that I, I, you know, this is the way I want to do it. This is my book. And so he sort of let, let things go there, but which I credit him on, of course, that he could have put the kibosh on that if he wanted to probably at the time, but I'm glad he didn't. Um, and so that book there represents mostly 
well, primarily me, of course, and how I felt, how I was looking at the Book of Mormon at that time. I hope that makes sense. Oh, it does. But you say something there that piques my interest, which is that you were interested in solid objective scholarship, but you got pushed back from John Gee in your effort to do so. Yeah, yeah. Both Johns were were a lot more pure apologists than I was. And I, I just noticed that as time went on. Like I said, in the later 90s, I was starting to feel like, you know, I was being pushed a little bit to to stretch things here or there. And I just didn't feel comfortable with that at all. Do you remember any examples of what it was that you were asked to stretch here or there? Um, like I say, this is like 20 something years ago now. Uh, so, um, you know, I just, re if you go, if you go to the book, you know, if we were to page through the book and some of the, what we would call, you know, those, these ancient elements that show up in the, Book of Abraham, I think I could probably point out. I didn't think that the priesthood ones were close at all, some of the priesthood stuff that they were putting in the book. Um, and there was, uh, again, that's just off the top of my head there. So it's, I wish I could tell you more, uh, RFM, but I, I can't think of, I can't think of anything right off the top of my head other than th that I was concerned about what they were thinking was priesthood language in some of these ancient sources. And I felt like that just wasn't there at all. Right. And they wanted, wanted to connect that, I presume, with Abraham chapter one, where he talks extensively about the priesthood and seeking for the right that belonged to his fathers. Yes, that's exactly right. And yeah. therefore, they wanted to go into ancient texts and find priesthood there. In other words, these ancient texts, these traditions about the early life of Abraham that were assembled in this volume and make connections to priesthood in those ancient texts to corroborate the book of Abraham, where in situations, or at least some situations, you felt that really the connection was weak. Yeah, absolutely. And there were a number of those uh, on some of the smaller points that, even smaller points that they were making. Uh, but priesthood was kind of a big one in my mind, uh, because that's a big, that's a big, uh, that's a huge doctrine. That's a huge part of the church. And you're almost trying to say, well, here's the church back in this antiquity, at least at least um, fragments of it, something like that. And so, but again, I just did not feel like there was anything there to do that. And so. Well, we're going to get into some specifics here as we go along, but I do want to say this, okay, because we're going to frame this discussion that you and I are going to have tonight around a Facebook post that you made back in November of 2018. I think you know what I'm talking about. I do, yes. Because you kind of set the book of Abraham Studies World on its head with this post, which came out of the blue, maybe not to you, but certainly to me and to a lot of other people. This was on Dan Vogel's Facebook page, I believe. Right, yeah. And if I understand this correctly, Dan Vogel, of course, has been issuing a number of very scholarly uh, videos about the book of Abraham. There are six or seven of them that I'm aware of. And in one of those videos, he had quoted from your 2010 book. And he had uh, mentioned something about how the evidence, as he saw it, at least as Dan Vogel saw it, was in contradiction to that position that you held back in 2010. Is that right? That's correct, yes. And this had a lot to do with the missing Abraham manuscript, which you're going to get into tonight. And out of nowhere, 
you wanted to correct the record for Dan Vogel, also for his listeners and the people who read his Facebook page with the following, and I'm going to read this now. You ready? Yes. This is Brian Howlett on Dan Vogel's Facebook page, November of 2018, correcting the record about Brian Howlett, your position from 2010 and how that had changed in the intervening eight years. Here we go. For the record, I no longer hold the views that have been quoted from my 2010 book in these videos, the Dan Vogel videos. I have moved on from my days as an outrageous, and that's in quotation marks, I have moved on from my days as an outrageous apologist. By the way, I'm going to break into your quote here. What did you mean by outrageous, and what did you mean by putting it in quotation marks? Well, I think, I think the word outrageous was used by Dan in his, in his video, if I recall. Oh, and, that makes sense, then, why you would put it in quotation marks. Yeah. And so I'm, I'm just quoting Dan there on that point. Um, okay, that makes sense. I'll go on reading your comment. In fact, I'm no longer interested or involved in apologetics in any way. I wholeheartedly agree with Dan, that would be Dan Vogel's, excellent assessment of the Abraham Egyptian documents in these videos. I now reject a missing Abraham manuscript. That's an important statement that you make there. We'll come back to that. I agree, this is you, I agree that two of the Abraham manuscripts were simultaneously dictated. I agree that the Egyptian papers were used to produce the book of Abraham. I agree that only Abraham 1 verse 1 through 2 verse 18, that would be the first portion of the book of Abraham from the very beginning to chapter 2 verse 18. I agree that only that section were produced in 1835 and that the balance of the book of Abraham, chapter 2 verse 19 through 521, were produced in Nauvoo. And on and on, you say. I no longer agree with Gee, that would be John Gee, or Mulestein, which would be Carrie Mulestein. I find their apologetic scholarship, and you put scholarship in quotation marks, I find their apologetic scholarship on the book of Abraham abhorrent. Okay, I got to stop there and ask you about that sentence. First off, why did you put scholarship in quotation marks there where you say, I find their apologetic scholarship on the book of Abraham abhorrent? And what did you mean by calling it abhorrent? I didn't like scholarship for me is trying to be honest and fair about the sources. I didn't think that they were being fair with the, the sources. I think they were omitting evidence that was, was skewing towards their point of view by not including the evidence. And, and to me, that's not good scholarship. You always have to take, take account of all of what's available to you before you can come up with some sort of a theory or hypothesis as to what, what might have been going on. And they were not doing that. They were avoiding evidence and for me, that's not good scholarship. And so that's why I put, they call it scholarship, but I put it in quotes because I didn't feel like it was good scholarship. And I feel like, felt like at the time, and I still do, that that kind of scholarship is misleading. And so uh, members of the church or other scholars out there that don't have access to these materials and haven't been able to take the time and probably will never take the time to comb over these documents in a very uh, detailed way, I feel like that's so misleading for them. 
they're not going to be able to really know what's going on because that it's being withheld from them, if that makes sense, uh, in a sense. They're hiding evidence, in a sense. Uh, and so that's why I put scholarship in quotes. So on the one hand, it's, it's omitting important evidence. Uh, they, they have a way of, by the wave of their hand, just kind of getting rid of all of the Egyptian material, all of the material actually after, after uh, 1835. They have a way of just kind of waving their hand and saying something to the effect, look, all the Book of Abraham was translated in 1835 every bit of it, and probably more than what we have, even as early as July, 1835. And therefore, everything that comes after it, which would be these Abraham and Egyptian manuscripts that Dan Volga was having all his videos on, all that material doesn't matter, okay? It's not part of the Abraham study. It's not part of what we need to learn about Abraham, the book of Abraham here, because it all came after the book of Abraham was already translated. And so that's really a super important point that they try to make. Uh, once you do that, then you don't, have to, you don't have to take the Egyptian papers and the Abraham manuscripts in the same way that you would if they were being created at the same time the Book of Abraham was being created. You can say they're all derivative of the Book of Abraham. Okay, and so, so that's why... Uh, and so they, they decide at that point, we don't have to worry about all those Abrahamic Egyptian manuscripts. Let's just worry about the Egyptology part. And we'll just study these papyri fragments. And, and that's, that's as far as we'll go. And we'll say that these Egyptian and Abraham papers are all derivative. They're all, you know, trying to, trying to look back and trying to figure out how the process was done, perhaps but that's all they're important for. And once you do that, okay, that evidence is no longer held as important for the book of Abraham. And, and so when I said abhorrent, uh, that it wasn't good scholarship, number one, and that it's abhorrent, abhorrent means that, that this is so very misleading for people, okay? You've got to get out all the evidence there, and you've got to look at the evidence and try to figure out what the evidence is telling you. And once you do that, you'll be able to see, at least I have anyway, and of course Dan Bogo has, uh, and both of us have not worked on this project, this Abraham project with Dan. Dan and I are independent from each other on this, but we're coming up with the same material, the same kinds of things about how these documents may have been used to produce the book of Abraham. And so that's why I call it abhorrent because they're just doing one slice of what was going on with the book of Abraham and omitting and ignoring everything else. I hope that that's clear. Does that come across clearly? I want to put it in context so that it will be clear to my audience. It is to me, but only because I've studied the heck out of this, had a number of phone conversations with you. And frankly, it wasn't until late last week that I finally understood the significance of it when you had probably explained it to me for the hundredth time and the light bulb went off uh, for me. So let me just go chronologically with you, all right? First off, Joseph Smith obtains the papyrus scrolls in 1835, correct? 
Yes. Was that early or mid-1835? We're talking about um, uh, late June or early July, 1835. Okay, so summer of 1835, and the book of Abraham as a published text does not come forward until seven years later in 1842, correct? Correct. All right. So there's seven years there, but let's go back to 1835. Now, you've been talking about the Abraham Papers. Yes. These Abraham Papers, we have a pretty good date on when those were produced as well. Those were at late 1835. Is that correct? Yes. Most of those papers... They were commonly referred to as the Kirtland Egyptian Papers. That, that uh, was, was, uh, was that, I guess, title or whatever. Nibley was the one who created that title. So, and some of them, some of the papers date to 1835, probably uh, around the fall of 1835. We get a lot of them being produced. Uh, but but may have had some even before that. And then some of the material is Nauvoo period material. And we've already established all that in scholarly ways, uh, tried to date those. And that's in that Joe Smith Papers book that Robin Jensen and I published in late 2018. Okay, great. So having established that, let me back up a little bit further, okay? And say that in these Kirtland Egyptian papers or these Abraham papers that we talked about that were produced toward the end of 1835, there is a section of those papers which looks for all the world like a portion, at least, of the Book of Abraham as we have it today is being interpreted from specific Egyptian characters, correct? Correct, yes. And the Egyptian characters are in the left-hand margin of the page. There's one Egyptian character, and then there's maybe a paragraph or so of text that is in the current book of Abraham. And then a little bit further down the page, we have another Egyptian character, and then we have another paragraph or so of text that ends up in the current book of Abraham, correct? That's correct, yes. So my feeling is looking at this, uh, it looks like the intent or what happened was is that there is an effort to translate these Egyptian characters, and the translation ends up becoming, at least in these sections, the text of the Book of Abraham. Is that fair to say? At least that portion of Abraham 1.1 to Abraham 2.18, yes. Right, so a portion of the Book of Abraham. Now, having said this much, let's go a little bit further and let's say uh, and clarify that these particular Egyptian characters that appear to be translated into this part of the text of the Book of Abraham are actually found on the Joseph Smith papyri that were discovered in the Metropolitan Museum of Art back in 1967 and are now in the possession of the LDS Church, correct? That is correct, yes. And not only that, this cluster of Egyptian characters that appear on the Abraham papers at this point and which are being translated into the Book of Abraham those appear on a fragment that comes right next, that is placed right next to facsimile number one of the book of Abraham, but on the papyrus, correct? Yes, that's exactly right. Yes. All right. Right, right after that papyri. So this is why it seems very important, at least if we're going to look at these Egyptian papers, to see that it appears, I think reasonably, if not overwhelmingly, that an effort was made in order to translate 
the Egyptian that was on the papyri that Joseph Smith had in his possession into the text of the book of Abraham. Yes. That's, okay. That's, right. that's what, uh, that's what has come out even since uh, the very late 1960s, 68 and 69. This is what we're seeing. We're seeing people saying that very thing. These look like translation papers. Okay. And the reason I'm going into this detail for everybody, by the way, is to explain why it is that there's so much contention about what seems like a really remote, uh, recondite, egg-headed, if I may say, issue about when the Book of Abraham text was translated. Because John Gee and Kerry Muelstein are very much in the camp that it was all translated in 1835. There was no part of it that was translated in the intervening seven years before its publication in 1842. Whereas your position, which seems to be based upon evidence that they're ignoring or hiding, as you put it, that really that translation occurred uh, not only before that point, but also substantially after that point. Is that right? Yes. Yes. Okay, now having said all that, by the way, I have to throw in the fact that the text of the book of Abraham itself seems to support this theory, because the book of Abraham, chapter 1, verses 14 through 16, I believe it is, or it's 12 through 14, no, it's 12 through 14, refers the reader back to the drawing or the figure at the commencement of this record. In other words, the book of Abraham itself is referring the readers back to facsimile number 1, which appears at the beginning of this record. So the text of the book of Abraham seems to show that it is translated from a portion of the papyrus that is very close in proximity to facsimile number one, correct? Yes, that's right. And indeed, when we look at the evidence, that is what actually happens because we have the, uh, the group of Egyptian characters that are translated into this section of the book of Abraham in close proximity itself to what is facsimile number one. In the book of Abraham, correct? Yes. So you you have both a it's describing a physical distance there. It's it's describing it in a physical way that these two that this material that's coming from the book of Abraham comes right after the facsimile one illustration. Yes. Okay. So not only the text of the book of Abraham puts Abraham chapter one in proximity, very close proximity to facsimile number one. The papyrus itself does the same thing. That's exactly right. Yes. Now, this all becomes very important because if you actually look at these characters, if Egyptologists today, including, by the way, John Gee and Kerry Muelstein, look at these characters on the Egyptian papers that appear to be translated into the book of Abraham, they can read those now, whereas Joseph Smith and really pretty much nobody in his time could read them, but they can read them now and they know that they have no relationship whatsoever to the text of the book of Abraham. All would agree with that point, yes. Okay. And in fact, this small cluster of characters doesn't end up being uh, pages and paragraphs of text. Really, it's probably just a couple of words. Yes, that's exactly right. Okay. So having said all of that, now we come to the missing papyrus theory. Because here's the deal. The book of Abraham has been presented by Joseph Smith, as well as his associates, as well as the church for a hundred years, over a hundred years, as being Joseph Smith's translation of these papyrus, that he was given the gift and power of God in order to translate what was on this papyrus, what was written on this papyrus in Egyptian into English, and that is the book of Abraham. Therefore, the book of Abraham should appear on this papyrus, except 
in Egyptian, right? And then if an Egyptologist reads the papyrus, they should be translating it into the book of Abraham. Yes. That's it's right. kind, of kind of rhetorical. And I'm sorry, I don't mean to be running away with the interview, just laying the groundwork for why this is important to yeah. them, to you, and should be important to all of us. It's not just a tempest in a teapot, because that's kind of how it sounds like over here on the side, that it's really not important, but it ends up being extremely important, which is why so much time and effort is being expended by John Gee, especially also Carrie Muelstein, before that by Hugh Nibley in trying to remove the actual text of the book of Abraham on the papyrus to some place that is different than the papyrus that was recovered in 1967. Yes, that's, that's, that's exactly it. Okay. So because none of the papyrus that we have from 1967 that Joseph Smith had, which bears all the markings of having been used to interpret at least the first chapter or so of the book of Abraham, because that is not in reality the book of Abraham when you actually look at it and translate it using Egyptology and a knowledge of the Egyptian language, then they were forced or they felt forced to back off of that theory and go to a second theory, to retreat to another theory, which is sometimes called the missing papyrus theory, which is basically this. Yes, we understand that the book of Abraham does not appear in Egyptian on these scroll fragments, but that's because we must be missing that part of the scroll that actually does have the book of Abraham written on it in Egyptian characters. And if we only had that missing fragment or that missing scroll, we would find that the book of Abraham really is on it, written in Egyptian characters, correct? Yes, but you have to remember, you have to go back now. Sorry, to, I don't want to derail you here. It's okay. But you have to now explain why you're not going to take the Abraham and Egyptian papers as evidence. You've got to explain that evidence still, okay, before you can move on to the missing papyrus theory. Does that make sense? Oh, yeah, and this is why it all devolves on the Kirtland Egyptian papers which I know you use the, the phrase Abraham papers, right? I, I use the, the term Egyptian. I use the term Abraham Egyptian papers. Okay. Not all, of the, not all of the papers are from the Kirtland period. Okay. Some of them so, are from the Nauvoo period. So now going back a little bit further, okay, Professor? Okay. These Kirtland Egyptian papers, and I'm sorry, the Abraham Egyptian papers, we know the papers I'm talking about, the ones I've just described in some detail. Right. Um, like I say, they look for all the world, like whoever is doing this is translating the book of Abraham from the papyrus that we actually have, correct? Yes. All right. Now, because John Gee holds to the missing papyrus theory, and there are others, it's not just John Gee, obviously, but he's certainly a, a primary proponent of that theory. He's got to explain this away. He's got to come up with some explanation as to why it is that the Abraham Egyptian papers, that segment that we've talked about that looks like uh, the book of Abraham is being translated from the G Egyptian characters that are on the papyrus that we have, why it's not really what it appears to be. Yes, that's, that's exactly right. Because the real book of Abraham, from their point of view, is translated from papyrus that we don't have anymore. Right. Okay, so we got to explain this. And the first thing that they do, uh, by the way, I've got to tell you, my experience with this is I was not aware really of what this whole controversy involved until, well, sometime after I was immersing myself in this kind of literature. You know, I was an apologist. 
a Mormon apologist for a number of years, and I tried to figure out what was going on, and I read a number of papers that were arguing about this very issue. And I could not get my head around why it was that they thought this was important. Because it seemed like the people writing the papers never really talked about why it was important to them to go to all this effort to argue for this particular position. Instead, they're just arguing the position. And me, I have no idea what the background is, what's really underlying this argument. So it was very confusing to me. And frankly, it seemed to me something that wasn't very important for me to know, to understand about the book of Abraham. Okay. Yeah. Okay. All right. So having said this, now we're going to get to why it is that it is so important for John Gee and other people for the missing papyrus theory to argue and to uh, hide evidence even in order to promote the idea that all of the book of Abraham was written in 1835 and none of it was written after 1835. And this is the part that you finally explained to me at the end of last week where all of a sudden it clicked. Here's the reason, okay? Obviously, in these Egyptian uh, Abraham papers or Abraham Egyptian papers, it looks like the book of Abraham is being translated from these characters. From John Gee's point of view, that cannot be the case. I think we've already described why that is, because the book of Abraham is translated from characters that are not on the papyri. It's from a missing portion of papyri. But there's obviously got to be some relationship between these characters and the translation, what appears to be the translation, next to them in the Abraham Egyptian papers. So instead of taking it at what appears to be the straightforward meaning is that the text of the book of Abraham is translated from these characters, instead, they come up with a different theory for why it is that this paper, these papers are structured in this way. And can you tell us what their theory is on that? Sure, yeah. And this goes back to uh, Hugh Nibley. Uh, he wrote an article that was published in BYU Studies and republished later by Farms. Uh, he, it was uh, the meaning, the purpose and meaning of the Kirtland Egyptian papers. And in that article, he's, he puts forth the, the argument that the scribes that Joseph Smith employed uh, in the translation of the book of Abraham, once the book of Abraham was fully translated, of course. Let me underscore that, okay, just for right now. I don't mean to interrupt. You keep your train of thought. Okay, the argument is that once the book of Abraham text was fully transcribed or revealed by revelation, then what? Then the scribes took it upon themselves as independent thinkers and, and nibbly takes great pains to show how independent they were in their thinking, they themselves uh, organized a project that would, that would uh, work to reverse engineer the translation project process that already had taken place. And so they are the ones that went through and created these papers and put the, put the uh, characters in the left margin and and uh, the Abraham text to the, to the right of the character, they were the ones that created these papers. And, yet, and the, three, the three main ones, because we have three, the three separate documents that are very similar coming out of that 1835 period by uh, Warren Parrish, Frederick G. Williams, and W.W. W. Phelps, 
they were the ones, according to Nibley, that created these papers by their reverse engineering. So they they did this project, I guess. This uh, Nibley Nibley's uh, Nibley's trying to uh, trying to understand these papers in such a way that he also can can conclude that the actual book of Abraham was on on other papyrus, okay, that's no longer around, okay? So he's trying to deal with that. And so that's why he's thinking, look, these, these guys, they were, these scribes, they were very powerful thinkers. They had their own opinions, their own way of doing things. And it looks to me, Nibley would say, that these papers, especially the Abraham ones that you had mentioned with the characters in the margin, it looks like they were the ones that did that. That way it opens up the now, it opens up the possibility uh, more clearly that the papyrus, that the actual book of Abraham is on is missing. Okay, I hope that makes sense. Right, and let me recapitulate that too to make sure I'm understanding it too. Basically, these three uh, scribes, no matter how independent they were in their thinking, there's absolutely nothing that they left that says that's what they're doing, correct? Nothing says that, no. This is all hypothetical. Right. Nibley yeah. is using some historical incidents or events where, the, where some of these people were kind of doing things on their own, okay? But he never comes out with any evidence that this is what they're doing with the Book of Abraham, okay? Because they don't ever say that. Right. And so now I'm still working my way toward putting a fine point on this because we're going to get a little bit in depth here only because it's so essential to understand what it is that's going on and why it's going on. So we've got these Abraham Egyptian papers that I think everybody agrees were produced at the end of 1835, correct? Yeah, mostly the second half of 1835. That's right. Okay. So in order for that, first off, the argument is made that this was something that was done by Joseph Smith's scribes. They were trying to reverse engineer the book of Abraham. They're writing down the text of the book of Abraham first on these papers. And then somehow, for some reason, these scribes are trying to figure out which characters in the papyri represent this portion of the text of the book of Abraham. And then they put the character in the margin, correct? That's right. They would put it in afterwards, after they already had the Abraham text there. And John tried to show this in his first edition of, of a little book pamphlet that he put, put out, uh, Joseph Smith and Egyptian Papyri, Papyri. I can't remember the exact title right off the top of my head right now. I should. I've read it a hundred times. But, but he has pictures in there where he tries to show that the ink of the characters is more recent than the ink of the book of Abraham material that's in there. And even though it would only be by a matter of hours or days. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> yeah. It was pretty, it, it was a pretty uh, shaky foundation. Of course, there was nothing really to that. And I don't know how, I don't think he's really stuck with that. Maybe he has, I don't know, but, but uh, that really caused a stir online back in the early two thousands when he published that book. Uh, how anybody could know, you know, what what the how anybody could date the the ink itself. But he wanted to show that the ink of the character was placed on there after 
all the Book of Abraham material was already written down on those sheets. Okay. So now I think we're prepared to talk about the final reason why this is critical. It took me a while to come to this. So let me try and say this as clearly as I can, and you correct me if I get anything wrong. Okay. From John Gee's point of view, the book of Abraham was translated from a portion of missing papyrus. From John Gee's point of view, and from any person's point of view, if the Abraham Egyptian papers actually represent a translation of a portion of the book of Abraham from characters that everybody agrees are on the papyrus that were found and that we have, then the missing papyrus theory goes up in smoke, correct? That's right. Therefore, therefore, the entirety of the book of Abraham must have been translated in 1835. It could not have been translated after 1835, and here's why. Because only if the text of the book of Abraham were translated in 1835 would these scribes, even hypothetically, have been able to write down the text of the book of Abraham in the Abraham Egyptian papers and then attempted to reverse engineer the text of the book of Abraham into those Egyptian characters. Do I have that correct? The fall, okay, so the, the three documents that have the characters on them come out of the fall of 1835, okay? So that means that the book of Abraham must have been translated in its entirety before the fall of 1835. Yes. Uh, and so are you saying this from John Gee's point of view or are you saying yeah. this from your point of view right now? No, I'm saying this from John Gee's point of view. Okay, very good. So here's the deal. While John Gee is spending a lot of time arguing that the entire book of Abraham was translated in 1835, what he's really doing is he's arguing for the missing papyrus theory. Is that correct? That's exactly right. And the reason why is because only if the book of Abraham texts were completely written in 1835 can the Abraham Egyptian papers be viewed as an attempt by the scribes to retro-engineer or retrofit or reverse engineer the text of the book of Abraham, which is on those dang Abraham Egyptian papers, those pesky Abraham Egyptian papers, back into the Hebrew, excuse me, the Hebrew, the Egyptian. Yes. Okay. That's, that's exactly right. You have got it. Well, good. I hope my listeners do. But the problem is, the problem is, is that the evidence seems to militate against John Gee's position, and that in fact, there was a great deal of translation on the book of Abraham that occurred after 1835. Now, once again, let me mention why that's important, because that's the reverse side of the coin from John Gee's point of view. If Abraham material from the book of Abraham were translated after 1835, then it is exceedingly difficult to interpret the Abraham Egyptian papers that we've been talking about as anything other than a translation or an attempted translation of the book of Abraham from the Egyptian characters. And we have evidence for that, historical evidence, in 1835. What do we have? We have Joseph Smith's journals. And in those journals, you have both the translation of the book of Abraham being talked about simultaneously with the work on the Egyptian project. Okay, and it's going on simultaneously, especially 
uh, the, that last part, the last half of 1835. And so even the historical record, okay, is, is supportive of the idea that both projects were going on at the same time, okay? And this is something that John and others don't seem to want to get into. They don't seem to want to deal with this, okay? Uh, and so I've written extensively about it, okay, that I see two things going on there simultaneously. Uh, but And what do you see going on there simultaneously, just to be clear? Just to be clear, I see happening mentioned in, this is actually what you're going to find in the sources, the, the Joseph Smith Journal. Okay, you can read it for yourselves. You can find, you can find at that last half of 1835, uh, entries in the journal that say, we, today we worked on translating the book of Abraham. And then on another occasion, not very long after, maybe just a few weeks or whatever, or sometime later, that now we're working on Egyptian. We're trying to understand the Egyptian language or whatever from the ancients. Okay. And so both of them are tied together. Okay. Both mm. of them are tied together. And you can find those actual readings in Joseph Smith's journal. Just get volume one of Joseph Smith's journal from the Joseph Smith papers and go to the second half of 1835 and you can find them yourself. So Joseph Smith himself seems to tie the Abraham Egyptian papers and what we find on there is what is a, apparently for all intents and purposes. Can I just say it's a translation project? Yeah, go ahead. From the characters on the papyri as we have them today into the text of the book of Abraham, Joseph Smith ties the production of the book of Abraham to that project as well. He ties the book of Abraham and he ties the, the creation of the Abraham Egyptian papers all together. For him, it was all going on at the same time. And actually, there are examples from Joseph Smith's journal or the journal of others after 1835 regarding their continued translation of the Book of Abraham. Is that correct? That's right. Yes. This Now we're getting to the Nauvoo period seven years later. And can you tell us about that? Sure. So in Joseph Smith's journals, you'll have uh, entries on March 8th and March 9th of 1842, where Joseph Smith talks about translating for the 10th number of the Times and Seasons. Now, the ninth number was the publication of the first part of the Book of Abraham we've been talking about that was produced in 1835. That was in the ninth number of the Times and Seasons. That was already done. Okay. Now, he's translating for the 10th number. And that picks up with the verse right after it's, it's Abraham two nineteen, and it goes right on through to Abraham five 21. Uh, that's what you find in the 10th number of the times and seasons, all that material. And he says, I'm translating on both the days. He says, I'm translating uh, Abraham material on the first day, March 8th. He says, I'm translating for the 10th, number of the times and seasons. On the second day, he says, I continued to translate and to revise for the, the material. Uh, and so that's, that's translation going on. 
So if translation is obviously going on, according to Joseph Smith, after 1835, what does John Gee do with that since he's committed to the position that all of the translation of the Book of Abraham was done in 1835? Well, both he and Carey believe that what, what uh, Joseph Smith means by translating uh, in his journals there is that it's revising already translated material that was produced in, in 1835. Does Joseph Smith give us any reason to think he meant revising? No, not really. I mean, on, on March 8th, he, he specifically uses the term translation. And on March 8th, or 9th, I'm sorry, he uses both terms. He says, I'm translating and revising. And so, so it doesn't make any sense, does it? That he so, would... No. So what they have to uh, argue is that he, when he says translating and revising, he means revising and revising? Yeah, revising and revising. Exactly. And that's March 9th of 1842? That's, that's March 8th and March 9th of 1842, just before the, the 10th number comes out with the rest of the Book of Abraham. Because you can't have any translation going on in 1842 if it's already been done in 1835. And it all has to be done in 1835 in order for the missing papyrus theory to hold water. That's exactly right. I know these are finer points, but it's really important. These are really important points to see where they're going with this. No, it is very important. I'm not going to repeat it again here. Uh, sometimes it's harder to get, but I would encourage any listeners who haven't quite had that light bulb go off, because believe me, it'll go off, just to go back and replay the last 10, 15, 20 minutes of this interview. It will click for you, I guarantee. Um, but so having said that much, it's also so important to John Gee because uh, to argue for the missing papyrus theory that he's even gone into the area of mathematics and scroll measurements. Yes. Now, I understand that uh, having read or listened to Robert Rittner, a world-renowned Egyptologist and John Gee's former professor and mentor at Yale, um, when he looks at the Joseph Smith papyri, when Robert Rittner looks at the Joseph Smith papyri, he says, you know, these are common uh, funerary texts, and there is no reason to think that this text that we have would extend more than maybe a couple more lines before it was done. But that, of course, is anathema to John Gee because he has to say, no, there's a huge length left because there's a huge length left because there has to be enough room for the actual book of Abraham to be on a missing part of the papyrus, right? That, that's exactly right. So he had a, John Gee himself had some sort of formula where, and this gets again into finer points, but how many times the scroll was rolled and to, to mathematically figure out if you were to unroll the scroll, how long it would be. And I think John had something like 40 feet or something. And then later on, Andrew, uh, Andrew Cook, I think it is, and, and Christopher Smith put out an article in Dialogue that showed where they thought showed where John was wrong in his formula, and they had it calculated to be just a matter of centimeters beyond where it is right now. Mm -hmm. uh, and so you're right, yeah, yeah. And John hasn't pushed that that forty foot theory for a long time since then. So, well, it's just so helpful to me to understand why it is that John Gee, of all people, is writing a paper about scroll windings and measurements. But the reason why is because he's still trying to promote his missing papyrus theory. That's exactly right. It's a, yeah, 
Yeah, for, it's a form of reductionism we're seeing here. John is looking through the lens of missing papyrus and interpreting all the evidence to fit that theory. I understand. It's something, it's a temptation that we all have to try and resist. Yes, we do. And of course, the problem is, and now I know I'm really putting a super fine point on it. The problem is, is that if the book of Abraham, as we have it today, came from the papyri as we have them today, then there's a huge problem because there's no relationship between the text of the book of Abraham and the papyri. In fact, the name Abraham doesn't even appear on any of the papyri, correct? Not on any of the papyri that we currently have in church archives. No, nothing. Right. That's why we've got to extend it so we can make more there uh, (laughs) to have room for the book of Abraham. Got it. Um, Let me ask you this, because there are some people, obviously not John Gee, obviously not Kerry Mielstein, but other people who try and come up with a catalyst theory for the production of the book of Abraham. They concede the fact that really what we have here in the papyrus is the source for the translation of the book of Abraham, but they try and do a catalyst theory, which means that the, the, um, oh, the papyrus itself was the catalyst for Joseph Smith to receive a legitimate revelation from God. Joseph Smith may have been thinking, he may have been presenting that he was doing this by translating the Egyptian into English, but actually he wasn't translating the Egyptian into English. We're forced to that position because we know that's the case now. And therefore is a catalyst to receive an authentic writing of Abraham that is not on the papyrus, but nevertheless managed to be revealed to Joseph Smith through this process where he thought he was translating, and therefore the book of Abraham is still authentic in ancient scripture, right? That's the catalyst theory. Well, the catalyst theory only works if you have it before these papers, of course. So it's it's another support for, for the missing papyrus theory in a way. Well, it's not a really support for the missing papyrus theory. That's true because it, it, it kind of uh, circumvents that. But the only problem with that well, not the only problem, but... I was going to say, there's only one problem with the catalyst theory? Well, a big problem with the catalyst theory is that we have enough evidence that Joseph Smith himself thought that the Book of Abraham was on the papyri, that it makes the catalyst theory uh, weaker, in my view. Um, so if he's thinking that the Book of Abraham is on the papyrus, uh, you, have, you have a couple of choices there. Either, either God isn't letting him know that it's not really on the papyrus and that it is the catalyst, that he's just, this was a whole catalyst thing. Or Joseph Smith is, is thinking that it's on the book of, or on the papyrus and it's not just a catalytic thing. It's that he's, he's working it out, okay, through his mind. You know, you know that one scripture in, D, what is it, DNC 9? Study it out. Yes, yeah, study it out in your mind and then I will tell you if it is right. Okay, so that so the catalyst theory wouldn't really work for that if Joe Smith is studying it out with all these papers and then putting the Book of Abraham together, uh, and so the catalyst theory is it's got problems there. Um, if you just say purely that it's a catalyst thing, you've still got to explain well what's going on with all this other stuff, right? <laughs> oh, absolutely, absolutely. And by the way, I'm just going to segue here uh, into another area. Because it has become very common among Mormon Egyptologists or Egyptologist apologists, as I like to call them, to now divert attention from of the reader and of the member away from the method that Joseph Smith used to produce the book of Abraham to the text of the book of Abraham 
itself. I was looking at Michael Rhodes give a presentation. I think it was a fair Mormon presentation where he's talking about how that doesn't make any difference. None of this uh, Egyptian paper stuff makes any difference. The only thing that makes any difference is the actual text of the book of Abraham, not how we get it and not how it was produced, but how it relates to other ancient texts and stories about the book of Abraham or about Abraham himself. Yes, that's right. Yeah, I remember one time going into Mike's office. This is years and years ago. And when I was beginning to really get into these Abraham Egyptian papers, and, and at that time we were talking currently in Egyptian papers, and I just said, well, what do you think about all this, Mike? And he said, uh, it's, just, it's just all googly gosh. It's, it, there's nothing there. Uh, he, he could recognize as an Egyptologist himself that it wasn't Egyptology, of course. It was just it nothing to do with, with Egyptian. Uh, and so he just uh, sort of uh, uh, decided that it was uh, just, just the musings of, of, the, of, of the scribes and, and others about what was going on with the Book of Abraham. Uh, I think he didn't really have a, you know, a missing papyrus. I, he didn't really talk about that at that little moment that we met. Maybe, maybe he would have if we would have spent more time together. But I remember him, you know, in no uncertain terms, just relegating all of the Abraham Egyptian papers to a point of no importance on what we need to do with the Book of Abraham. Okay, that these are not don't worry about those papers. Okay. <laughs> it basically is what he was saying. Pay no attention to those papers behind the curtain. That's exactly right. <laughs> well, and that's, that speaks to the point of reference that a person's coming to these papers from, because if you are committed to the idea that this is a revelation, that this is actual scripture being revealed, then yeah, the Abraham Egyptian papers look like a lot of, what do you say, a gobbledygook or gobbledygosh? Something like that, yeah. <laughs> no, they don't make any sense. But as soon as you change your frame of reference and are willing to look at them for what they appear for all intents and purposes to be, it looks like they're translating the book of Abraham from some of the characters that are found on the papyri. Yeah, you just you, you don't want to really focus on that because, because you, you focus on the, the text of the book of Abraham as a as a part of your faith, you know that you don't worry about all those other, all that other material, uh, because that just gets in the way. You want to know that the Book of Abraham is the Word of God, and so it's much like the Book of Abraham, or I'm sorry, the Book of Mormon, you know, where you have a, a spiritual impression that it's that it's from God. Okay, don't worry about all this other material, and I get where that's coming from. Where is that coming from? That's coming from a point of faith, okay? You just, you accept the book of Abraham on faith. Um, and, and, and then, you know, you don't, basically you don't have to worry about all this other stuff if, if that's how you accept the book of Abraham. A lot of people are that way in the church, right? They don't look at the origins of the book of Mormon or the book of Abraham, okay? They read, the, read, they read those texts and they feel like they're getting a spiritual confirmation that they are what the church says they are. Absolutely. And yet they can't leave it alone. It's like, you know, they say about members of the church who leave, they, can't, they, they can leave the church, but they can't leave it alone. A lot of these people, like Michael Rhodes, and I'm not trying to pick on him, or John Gee, uh, can leave that to the side or try and 
focus attention away to the text of the book of Abraham, but they do that for the purpose of now trying to show proof that the book of Abraham is authentic by making connections and comparisons to ancient stories in old literature about the life of Abraham and saying, look at how it shows up in the book of Abraham produced by Joseph Smith. Yes, that, that's, that's exactly right. So I want to talk to you a little bit about that because now I'm getting back to where we kind of started with this huge volume. It's like 550 pages. It's beautiful. That traditions about the early life of Abraham and all the connections that are attempted to be made between this ancient literature about Abraham and Joseph Smith's book of Abraham that he produced, which as I look at it, is really the primary point of the production of this volume in the first place. Yes, that's right. Yeah. And I was, as I mentioned earlier, I was, uh, reticent to, to, to be too apologetic with that text because trying to tie the book of Abraham into ancient texts like that is really, it's, it's, a, it's a dicey kind of thing to do because trying to make connections between traditions and, and find these parallels. Uh, and by the way, this book kind of comes out of a period of trying to find lots of parallels between the Book of Mormon or between the Book of Abraham and the ancient world, all going all the way back to Nibley. And of course, you, the, the risk is that you're going to get into what's called parallelomania, okay, where you're just seeing parallels everywhere, uh, but you're not able to tie them together historically, tradition, because you, you're having, you can't tie the text together, okay? And so you're taking texts from all these different time periods in antiquity, different civilizations, and then you're saying, look, it shows this, it shows this particular point of, of the book of Abraham or whatever, uh, and, but you're not actually going through and, and showing how this text could have been related to that text. Does that make sense? Oh, absolutely it does. And I'll just say very briefly, uh, one of the main I say it briefly because I went over it in detail in the prior podcast. One of the main connections has to do with the oft-repeated story in ancient literature about Abraham of the fact that he was attempted to be sacrificed because he uh, destroyed the idols of his father. Right. So, so the first thing is that that is attempted to be made as a, uh, a parallel to Abraham chapter 1 where he's attempted to be sacrificed because apparently he's getting in the way of the idolatrous practices that are going on in that book. Now, there's a couple of problems. First off, that's amazing if you see that much and if you go no further. The, yeah. first, the first problem is that the stories in the ancient Abrahamic tradition have to do with Abraham being attempted to be sacrificed by fire by the Babylonians. Yes. The book of, the book of Abraham, on the other hand, has Abraham attempting to be sacrificed by the Egyptian priest who for some reason or other, which is not apparently supported historically either, is alive and well and has a lot of influence in Ur of the Chaldees. In other words, in Babylonia. Yeah. So, and that's by a knife, not by fire. Right. Now, it might be somewhat impressive if those stories, the ancient stories about uh, the attempted sacrifice of Abraham by throwing him into a fiery furnace were only in sources that were not available to Joseph Smith, 
but we find out that actually they were in sources that were available to Joseph Smith as well. That's that's right. Bible commentaries and and such. Yeah, Book of Jasher, which you know the, the apologists will argue came out after the Book of Abraham was published, but uh, there was enough in other commentaries and such that uh, some of these stories had already been circulating. These are ancient Jewish traditions where Abraham is is uh, said to be a burned, but once you get into the Islamic tradition, it gets a lot more elaborate. That's one of the ways you can tell, by the way, where a story, if you can get back to the kernel of a story, you know you're getting back to the older story, the older rendering of a story. And then when you see more elaboration happening, that that's generally speaking, uh, that story has been told enough times where it's getting bigger. Um, and so uh, in the Islamic world, it was just taking Jewish traditions and elaborating on those. And so Abraham, Abraham gets uh, thrown into a fire uh, and is saved by an angel though, right? Mm-hmm. Saved by the angel Gabriel. Uh, and because he's not burned at all, of course, when he's thrown in the fire and he's, some of the stories say he's just sitting there in the fire with Gabriel having a nice cup of tea, you know, having a conversation. And um, so, so these stories then uh, have, have their own context, okay, apart from the book of Abraham. So you're not going to get the same exact context. Which, which kind of bothered me when we were putting these traditions together, okay? We're just saying, we're just taking the general concept of sacrifice, okay? And even that in and of itself is, is a, a term that you can have arguments about. Is, is that what the Egyptians, that's their context, that this is a sacrifice, okay? But is that what we're seeing in these other sources that, that Abraham is being sacrificed or is he being executed? capital punishment type thing, uh, because the old the traditions, at least out of Islam and maybe even out of Judaism, do not talk about that he's being sacrificed to the gods, okay? Whereas in the book of Abraham, you are getting more of that kind of a context, that Abraham is being sacrificed to the Egyptian gods. Is that, is that clear? Oh, absolutely. Because, and actually, I sort of blurred the lines there when I was talking about the book of Abraham, Because, but that's my fault, right? And that's probably the apologist uh, leanings in me, the, the leftovers in me, uh, putting that in there because, no, the book of Abraham does talk about Abraham being sacrificed to the gods, not as a penalty. It also puts him in the context of about like three other virgins or something that have been sacrificed that's on the right. same altar. Yes, that's exactly right. It's like because of his righteousness and his purity or something like that, that he's going to be sacrificed to the gods, not as a penalty for having done something to interfere with the idolatrous uh, religion that's going on. Yeah, so, so when we publish the book, you know, and put sacrifice in there, uh, I, obviously I wasn't concerned about it enough to try and get him not to include that, because I guess I, I myself must have been thinking along those lines as well. But that, that idea of sacrifice stuck. And this gets to another podcast that you did about Kerry Milstein, where he continues to use that word sacrifice for Latter-day Saints. But when he's talking about it to his peers in other articles, he might be using the word capital punishment or execution. 
uh, or sanctioned killing or sanctioned killing or something like that. And you brought, brought that out very clearly in that particular podcast. Uh, so it's, it's, it's a, it's a term sacrifice is only used for a, a for one purpose in this situation, and that is that it ties it into the book of Abraham. Can you tell us a little bit about the plains of Olishem in the book of Abraham? Yeah. Um, so that word, according to John, this was published in the Journal of Book of Mormon and other restoration scripture. I actually had the, the name changed back to uh, its original, which was Journal of Book of Mormon Studies. But before I became the editor, John tried to get in a couple articles, and he did. One was on Olishem, that word that you find in the book of, of Abraham. Uh, what is it, Plains of Olishem or something? I can't remember exactly how it said there, but, but the word Olishem is used. And John tries to trace that word back to Akkadian or Sumerian or something like that, the very earliest cuneiform writings uh, to say that it was related to a word uh, that was another place name back in back in that early period, and I contacted a uh, a Sumeriologist, a Kadianologist, or whatever, uh, in, a Latter Day Saint in London. Uh, London. Well, it wasn't he? Doesn't live in London, but he lives in England, I should say. And uh, I asked him, "What What do you think about?" I had him read the article, and what do you think about that? And he said, it's thin gruel, meaning that this is really a stretch. He didn't see the connections as strongly as John did, uh, that it was more of a uh, artificial kind of connection that, that John was making to try to prove a point that uh, we've got that the book of Abraham, again, tied to the ancient world. But he called it thin gruel. Thin gruel indeed. Well, Olishem, I think the argument runs that Olishem, as it appears in the book of Abraham, uh, is sort of like a word in a different language than Egyptian or even Hebrew uh, in a part of the world where it really doesn't belong anyway. Exactly. Yeah. So it's out of context, not only in location, but also in language. And even then, it sort of resembles the same word. Yeah, it's just another... Another uh, symptom, I think, of parallelomania, where you're seeing something there that uh, you want to see something there that probably really isn't there. I have to say something now about Carrie Muelstein, because uh, just to set this up very quickly, I think most of my listeners will know this. If not, go back, listen to the previous podcast. There is a papyrus. It's a Leiden papyrus. I cannot remember the exact number, which has a figure on a lion couch attended by Anubis. It's actually a female figure on the lion couch. There's some writing in Greek underneath it. It's a magic parchment. It's basically a love spell. And the names underneath this parchment, which are in Greek, which were apparently added at a later time than the drawing of the lady on the lion couch, has a list of names, which are supposed to have magical properties. And one of those names in the list is Abraham. And on a fair Mormon uh, video, Carrie Muelstein actually says that the papyrus itself says that Abraham is upon the lion couch. Yeah, that's how he translated it. It's, it doesn't say lion couch. It's just that Abraham, who 
upon, and then it breaks off. Okay, that's how they tra- that's how both John and Carrie translate that. But if you go to the actual text, <coughs> excuse me, uh, it's a it's a series called the PGM. I can't remember exactly what the it's about, but it's about magical papyri. And you go back to where the the author or the translator translate it, you can't find that at all. Um, you can't so, find even the upon? You can't find the upon, no. Oh, my goodness. You've got Abraham in there, but it's only used as, an, as part of a spell, okay, a love spell, a love charm. Uh, and you're just kind of invoking names in there. And so that it's just part of a, a longer list of names. But the word upon is not there. Okay, I can't find it in there anyway. And certainly uh, not the phrase Abraham upon the lion couch. No, 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 certainly not that. And I know Kerry said that on the that video that he did. And I confronted him with that. And the, I just said it, it was just very misleading. And he sort of agreed, sort of didn't. Kerry and I, I should say Kerry and I are friends. Okay, we we both know that we have disagreements about the book of Abraham, but, but, uh, but we're friends. And so I don't want to say anything about him that, that, uh, I shouldn't say, but I just felt like he was, you know, misleading on that particular point. And so he may have just have kind of gotten, got, it just may have, you know, he just kind of went a little bit further maybe than he should have on that particular point. But I don't think John, John disagrees with Carrie. So, and I don't know if Carrie got it from John or if they both kind of came up with it, but, but it's there. That's how they think about it. So Abraham, who upon, and then you're supposed to fill in the rest, the lion couch or on this altar, whatever. Um, so, yeah, I hope that <laughs> I didn't mess that up too much. No, as between Carrie Muelstein and John Gee, both Mormon Egyptologists, uh-huh. what do you see as the main difference between the two? Well, I see John as as sort of the, I guess, the the senior of the two, and then I see Carrie kind of following John in a lot of ways, uh, and and I think. I think John would probably credit himself with with coming up with most of the the arguments, uh, and that Kerry would be sort of following along with that. Um, and so, because John was John was in the in the whole business before Kerry got his PhD, I think, and Kerry's kind of coming along a little bit later than John. John's working about working on it, you know, back in grad school. I mean, he's you're going pretty far back there. So he's kind of the, I guess the senior companion, (laughs) I suppose. Um, Well, Carrie came, go ahead. I'm sorry. But they both have written articles about sacrifice in Egypt. Uh, And you, again, your podcast kind of gets into all that when you're talking about Carrie's work there with sacrifice. And uh, yeah, so that's, so that I don't know who who came up with them. You know, we were talking about sacrifice in our book, of course, in the traditions book, and so I guess it's just been around. Maybe maybe you can trace it back to Nibley. I don't know. Probably can. 
Well, in another video where Kerry Mulesing was making a presentation, a public presentation, he actually talked about the fact that he begins in all of his scholarship, his Egyptological scholarship, with the assumption already firmly in place that the Book of Abraham is inspired and true. And then he views all of the evidence in light of that conclusion. And basically, I don't know if he goes this far. He goes pretty far, but I don't think he goes this far. But basically, he's going to tailor the evidence in order to fit his conclusion. Do you remember him saying that? I was there when he said it uh, at that conference. I heard him. I heard him in person speaking. And at first, it it just really bothered me, you know, because I felt like that in scholarship, uh, you can't empirically, you can't put faith in your scholarship, faith, I mean, matters of faith in your scholarship empirically, because there's no, you, you, do, you have no evidence, of course. So you, you only work off of what evidence that is available to you as a scholar. And so when he said that, it really took me aback. And I thought, wow, you know, to, to, to just stand up and say that, you know, you're kind of saying I'm not really being a, a scholar in the traditional sense here as uh, someone who's going to be objective about the evidence, I'm going to be biased towards my own faith and I'm going to put my faith into my scholarship. And of course I didn't agree with that. Now, as I've thought about it over the years, I think, well, thank you, Carrie, for being honest. You know, you're just being honest about what you're doing there. And, and now we know, right now we know that, that when we see something from Carrie, that's where he's coming from. And I appreciate that now, uh, even though I don't accept it still, but at least I appreciate it. Do you see that as different from John Gee's approach? Uh, very much so. Uh, John Gee is, is very much uh, into subterfuges and into subtleties. And so his approach is very different than Carey. You know, he's a, He's a adamant defender of the kingdom. There's no question about that. He thinks he is a warrior for the church. Um, and that's been his role in farms up until, of course, it's, it's disillusion after 2012 with, uh, with the whole Dan Peterson debacle. Uh, but that, that's what John's whole approach was based on, that he is a, ardent defender of the faith. And, but he's not going to let you know his methods. He's not going to, to give up what he's really thinking. Uh, and so it's always, you know, there's always something going on in his mind there that he's not going to let you know about. And I've got numerous experience with this. Okay. I want to go into I'm a, I'm, a, I'm suspect in his mind when I wasn't suspect in his mind, I, you know, I got, I had a lot more frank conversations probably with him on what he thought. I did. Uh, but as time went on, of course, uh, I became more suspect in his thinking. So now he's not going to be sharing things with me anymore. And so it's more of a passive aggressive approach with him now. And that's how he deals with things. If you're not in, in the inner circle, that's what you're going to get. You don't, you don't ever really know what he's thinking, what he's going to do. I want to get into a few of those examples here in a second, 
But before I do that, I know that there are at least a certain number of my listeners who would never forgive me if I did not inquire further about your statement regarding the 2012 Dan Peterson debacle. Oh. uh, What do you know about that? I don't really know a whole lot about it. I mean, I came in and, I mean, although I was, was associated with the Institute before 2013, um, you know, I was full-time teaching load up at, up in the ancient scripture. So my interactions with farms at before 2013 were, you know, just based on projects and such. And so I wasn't in the inner group of what was really going on. I knew Jerry Bradford. He was the executive director uh, at the time, you know, for, for many years. And he and I would go out to lunch, but we mostly were just talking about different projects that, that I was involved in. He's the one that got me involved, helped me get through uh, the founding of Studies in the Bible and Antiquity. Me and Carl Griffin founded that journal, and I was the editor at the very beginning uh, for four or five years, and then, and then Carl. But um, so, you know, when that happened, it was just as much, pretty much a surprise to me as it was to everybody else. Okay, so I come on the scene later after after Dan is gone. Then now we're talking about me becoming the, uh, you know, uh, more involved with the with the institute, Maxwell Institute, not farms, because you know now I'm having conversations with Jerry that things are taking a different turn towards more scholarly approaches and less apologetics, which I agreed with, by the way. I didn't like the apologetics that was coming out from farms. Uh, much of it was, was to me, it was too uh, mean, really cruel, in a lot of mean-spirited, ad hominem-type attacks on people. And so I didn't appreciate that. And so when it happened, even though I wasn't involved with it, I thought it was a good, good thing that we were kind of, that Jerry was trying to root out you know, some of that, that going on, some of that apologetics going on in, in the Institute. Uh, and so I come on the scene afterwards where Jerry knows that I'm interested in the scholarship more than I'm interested in apologetics. And he wants me to be a part of, of uh, the Institute going in that direction from then on. And so in 2013, the university appoints me to be the Willis Center director where I'm 60% at Maxwell Institute and 40% up at uh, the ancient scripture department. And so that's when I really start getting involved with, with the Maxwell Institute. Um, But before that, you know, a lot of what that was, what was going on, I was not part of any of that. Okay. Well, let me turn to the book of Abraham essay that came out on the church's website, I think it was 2014. So this is right around the time period that you're talking about, right? Yeah. Were you involved in the writing of that essay? Um, Yes. Can you tell us about that experience? Well, I was uh, contacted by uh, a church person, I'll just say, um, uh, to try to... Originally, I was going to head up the committee, um, and they were still trying to work out exactly what they were trying to do. So, so all everything's in flux 
when I get contacted. And so at the very beginning, they just asked that I produce a document that, that, uh, or actually three types of a document or a shorter doc, a short document uh, that somebody could read that just kind of encapsulates, you know, the main idea of the book of Abraham, what's going on there. And then a little bit longer one for those who maybe want to read a little bit more. And then a, a, a much longer one for those who want to really get into it um, in, a, in a more, I guess, academic way. And, and so I worked on that. I, I produced the longer one first that I thought I could just get the, the two smaller ones kind of derived from that. And, uh, and so I just went through everything I could think of about the book of Abraham, talking about all the things that we've talked about so far you know, with the manuscripts and such. And, and uh, we, we haven't even talked about the facsimiles, but I also talked about, you know, what's, what's happening with the facsimiles and some controversies there. Uh, and, uh, and it was more of an academic approach. Um, and so I was called up a little bit later to have a, a meeting with the general authority after I had submitted that longer piece. And the general authority was very nice and, and, uh, Kind, but but you know he wanted to impress upon me you know that that we're, uh, we're we are dealing with the faith of the members and that we want to not be too academic and I know I have that tendency anyway to get too academic about things and people get lost in the in the weeds and they lose their interest and so I took it as a as a constructive criticism I didn't take it as you know anything anything uh, you, you know that there was some that there was some passive aggressiveness going on there or anything like that. And so, but in the meantime, I went back and I tried to work on it some more. And then I got contacted by uh, the same person that had asked me to do it in the first place and said, like, that we're trying to create a committee and we're going to have this particular person over the committee now. And, and I was totally fine with all that. I didn't feel like, you know, I was, that I was being punished or anything like that. It was just kind of, they were in flux. And so they were trying to, to get, uh, you know, they were trying to figure out more what they were trying to do on their end. And so they decided they were going to have a person up there that reports to them over the committee. And he would kind of be the voice of the, of the uh, essay. And then at that point, there were just a number of us, that were asked to be on the committee. And can, I, can I back this up for a second, Professor? Sure. So as I'm understanding it, you were first asked to write the essay, the three different essays on the Book of Abraham, the long, the medium, and the short ones. Is that correct? That's right. You did so, and then you were called up to an unnamed GA, and you were told that you were maybe too academic for the purposes of the essay. Yeah, yeah. As far as, uh, you know, just getting into too many details, too many details. Of course... It's the details that are important here, as you're bringing out in this podcast, right? In this episode. <laughs> right. It's the details that can be very important, and I can understand why a church general authority might not want you to be getting into certain of those details. Yeah. But then yeah. after, after this meeting now with this general authority, who I understand you don't want to name, uh, you're contacted again by the person who originally contacted you about writing the individual essays on your own and told that this is going to be now a committee effort. Yeah, that there's going to be somebody... 
appointed, and he gave me the name of the person that would be appointed to kind of work through from that point on. Is that a general authority? No, that was not a general authority. No. Okay, but that person's going to work with the general authorities. He's going to be like the liaison between the committee and the general authorities? Exactly, yeah. All right, so now a committee's created, and you're on it. Other people are on it. John Gee and Carrie Muelstein are on it? Yeah, absolutely. They are on it, yes. All right. Was there any kind of injunction about keeping uh, what happens in the committee within the committee and not talking about it outside? Yeah, at the very end, I was told by the our committee chairperson, you know, not to share too much, not to share much about what we did. It took about nine months, I think it was, to put it all together. And so that's why I'm not going to give any names or anything. I'm just kind of giving sort of a skeletal outline of what, what occurred because uh, I don't feel comfortable giving names at this point because I don't have their permission, right? Uh, right. Them. I, obviously, Carrie and John would be on it because they're just two obvious people that would, that would be on it. And so I'm not going to mention who else was on the committee. Uh, How many people were on the committee? Uh, let's see, probably about a half dozen of us. Mm-hmm. Okay, so we've got the names of half of them then. Three out of six ain't bad. Yeah, it might have been a few, a couple more maybe. I don't know. But it was, uh, it was, it was a fairly good group. They're probably, uh, I think, three Egypt, Egyptologists. And the rest of us, you know, were just people that had been involved with Book of Abraham studies for quite a while. So... Were there any controversies that you ran into as a committee in how the, the essay should be written? Uh, yes, yes, of course. Uh, you know, the, the discussions about Egyptology were pretty heated uh, because I felt, and I wasn't alone in this, I felt that, that uh, our Egyptologists, and I'll just say John and Carrie, uh, specifically on this, do not trust the their peers in in uh, having others their their peers look at their material before they published it and i'm I think peer review is really important I think it's a it's very helpful uh, when we're when we're seeing things that that uh, maybe we should have others look at to make sure that that we're seeing this right. And so, for instance, on the sacrifice thing, uh, you know, is this the way Egyptologists would really interpret, other Egyptologists would really interpret, you know, this situation as sacrifice? And, of course, I come to find out after writing other Egyptologists and such that, no, they don't look at it as sacrifice. They look at it as sanctioned killing or, or capital punishment or something like that. Uh, and so, so part of what our discussions were, you know, when we talked about Oli Shem or we talked about, you know, that uh, illustration that you mentioned from uh, Leiden, the Leiden illustration, you know, that these things have not, not been, have not been uh, peer reviewed. And the reason they haven't been peer reviewed is because, you know, I think they knew that they would be called on it, you know. And so I brought that out in our meetings and said, look, should we include this kind of stuff in the essay when, when the other, other Egyptologists are not agreeing with this interpretation and would never agree with it? 
And I looked at it as low hanging fruit because after the essay was published, Robert Rittner came out almost immediately with a, with a response to it. And he went to those very things that I was worried about. He would talk about, you know, uh, and, and so I was very concerned about that. And we had, that was probably the most heated part of the conversation. The whole idea here is, is, or the, I guess the question is how much is Egyptology really necessary for getting at some of these controversies that we see in the book of Abraham? How important is it? Well, it's important in terms of understanding the papyri, certainly the dating of the papyri, uh, the provenance, you know, who it's related to, you know, the historical part of it, whatever. That's all very important. But when you get to the Abraham Egyptian papers, Egyptology isn't necessary for that at all because it's not Egyptology. There's no Egyptian in there except for those little characters that we talked about that don't translate to the book of Abraham. And so, so there's not really anything that Egyptology can really help us on. Right. I'm sorry. I was, was going to say right. Ironically, uh, a knowledge of Egyptian is, as it relates to the Book of Abraham, is really only good for showing us that the person who translated the Book of Abraham knew nothing about Egyptian. That's right. Yeah, that that Joseph Smith did not know anything about Egyptian. Neither did his scribes. Nobody knew anything about Egyptian in that little circle of people in in the summer and fall of 1835. And so, so this became, you know, kind of a, a sticking point. Uh, and of course, we know that these materials were included in the essay. Um, and of course, I wasn't happy about that, but that's just the way it is. It was a committee effort. That that's what this uh, this I'm, I'm I'm saying that it was the best that that the writer. And I don't fault the writer at all, okay? The writer just did what, what he could in the very best possible way that he could uh, after reviewing all of what we had talked about. And he just felt strongly that this is the essay that he wanted to write, and this is the one. I don't know what he had, you know, I do know what he had originally written, and that did pass through us as a committee, and we, we tried to help him on all kinds of things there, but before it went to the general authorities. but. Um, but once it was done, it was done. That was it. Once it was published online, it was published. And so then you just let the chips fall where they may after that. So it sounds to me, I want to make a couple of points here. First off, by way of question, it sounds to me like what you just described there is that you, you got replaced as the uh, main writer of this essay. I did, yes. So this yeah. other person whose name you don't want to mention, I respect that. But all of a sudden now you're talking about the writer that used to be you. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So yeah, I'm no longer the writer. <laughs> so okay, maybe a good thing as it turned out, at least as far as the church was concerned. Yeah, probably. I, I think they were just looking for somebody who could, could uh, have the kind of prose that would, that members of the church who were reading it could understand. And me, I'm a scholar. I totally get that when I write something, you know, it's going to be different than maybe, uh, you know, somebody who's a little bit more popular writer, you know, that can write things <laughs> more generally, more simply. 
But I have a problem with that because I'm always anchored to texts and I'm always trying to stay anchored to the evidence. Yeah, you're trying to hew to the facts. That's a problem. And that's a problem when you... And so they didn't... I don't think that they really wanted to to get at things the way we're getting at them now because that just wouldn't bolster the faith of the people, of course. And am I understanding you correctly that all of these pieces of apologetics that got placed in the Book of Abraham essay were placed there uh, over your objection? Yeah, pretty much. Yeah. And that's because you actually predicted that if you put this stuff in there, then it's low-hanging fruit because the first Egyptologist who comes along is going to whack it off. That's exactly right. And he did. That's what Robert Rittner did. Yeah. Well, sir, I perceive that thou art a prophet. (laughs) I could see it. I saw the writing on the wall. That's right. (laughs) Well, now, volume four of the Joseph Smith Papers series on revelations and translations comes along. That comes Uh out in 2018. You co-edit that with Robin Jensen, I believe. Yes, yes. And now... This really is a production. It's a, it's a wonderful book. I haven't seen it. I'm sorry. I'll get it, honestly. But my, understand, <laughs> but my understanding is that really what it is, is it's a book that puts forward for scholars and the public at large re- reproductions of the actual Abraham Egyptian papers. Yeah, it's just in the, it just follows the same uh, rigid protocols that all the previous volumes from the Joe Smith papers project had produced. Basically, it's just another one in that long line. I'd say it's a very noble line of books there uh, to be even part of that. And they're very particular, very good scholars up there. And you and Robin wrote an introduction, a relatively brief introduction to this volume. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And that was really the only part of it that you actually expressed yourselves in a scholarly way. Is that correct? Yeah. Mm Mm-hmm. Well, it appears that your introduction did not sit well with John Gee. No. No, the whole book did not sit well with John Gee. Well, the reason I say this is because John Gee himself published in the pages, or at least the virtual pages, of The Interpreter, an article about it in which he vents a lot of spleen. In fact, he titles it, The Joseph Smith Papers Project Stumbles. Yes. And some people have referred to this as a hit piece on your entire volume. And when I say your volume, I really should say the Joseph Smith Papers volume that we're talking about, Revelations and Translations, Volume 4, that came out in 2018. Yeah, I should say, if I can interject here, um, that Robin and I were just, were called, we were just called the lead editors, okay? In other words, we're just kind of the, the point men for the Joe Smith Papers project. Okay. In other words, behind us was a whole host of people, experts in handwriting, history, documentary evidence, all sorts of people, okay, who also come through this book. All right. We're just the guys that get our names on the book, but we're just the lead guys. Okay. So this is a Joseph Smith Papers production. It's not just a Brian and Robin production. <laughs> right. I understand. One, one would presume that John Gee would know that as well, wouldn't he? I, I would think so. Uh, but, but going back to 2013 to a church history symposium that is, is uh, put out by the church every year, by the way, 
uh, we met up in in Salt Lake and presented papers and John was there and John castigated the Joe Smith Papers project in front of a lot of Joe Smith Papers people. Um, really? He, what did he say about it? He just said that, that we shouldn't have done that. We've, we're here to defend the kingdom. And if it's not defending the kingdom, we shouldn't really be doing this kind of stuff. Uh, he doesn't, I don't, you know, I don't want to put words in his mouth, so I can't remember exactly how he put it, but that's kind of how it came across um, to a lot of us. And, and so, you know, I'm sure that the people out there caught that, you know, they all knew John Gee was not, was not really a fan of the Joe Smith papers project. Um, but this, he, he gets up and publicly states that at this conference. In 2013. 2013, that's right. Well, let me just follow that up a little bit because the Joseph Smith Papers Project has been mentioned by more than one general authority as the exhibit A of how it is that the LDS Church is being so much more transparent now than it has since its inception, really. And yet, John Gee doesn't like the idea of the Joseph Smith Papers Project because he sees it as contradictory in some way to the mission of defending the church? Yeah, I think something along those lines, yeah. What is yeah. it about the Joseph Smith Papers Project that would hurt the church? Well, I don't think he likes the idea of just putting everything out there. Okay, and I'm just having to interpret this, okay, from my point of view. I don't know if it's correct or not. But I think he's just, he's, I think he believes that, that not all truths are useful. Okay, kind of like what President Packer said a while back. Uh, that you you learn to you learn to give the members the information that you feel like will keep the faith, but other than that, you you omit other things, and not everything is useful to put in there. And the Joe Smith Papers Project, as you know, is just trying to get all this material out in a transparent way. And from my point of view, you know, I'm seeing John kind of uh, resist that. Uh, because now that just makes more work for the apologists, right? <laughs> Maybe in his mind. Yes. More more to defend there. And, you know, there's enough to defend as it is. But, but you know, again, this is just totally from my perspective. But, um, but I can't see how John would really be able to appreciate the Joe Smith Papers project as transparent as it is and as getting as much fact- getting as many facts out as possible uh, with the documents. Um, no, can I just interrupt you and say, you're not just speculating here because John Gee has gone on record that he definitely believes that maybe not specifically about the Joseph Smith papers project, but in his fair Mormon conference address back in the summer of 2018, he quoted approvingly Boyd K Packer's comments about how not all truths are useful and that you have to hide the stuff that hurts the church. And if you don't hide the stuff that hurts the church, then you're violating your covenants and God will hold you responsible. Yes, that's right. That's exactly right. And only he, John Gee, knows how to navigate the minefield. So leave it in the hands of, of people like him, especially him, to be able to help navigate all this. You know, he actually did, of course, talk about a minefield, and he also likened the job of Egyptological apologetics and Mormonism to juggling hand grenades. 
<laughs> yeah, that's right. And he said, if you don't know how to juggle the hand grenades, like, of course, he does, this one's for professionals only. Right. Then they can maybe fly off and go off in the audience. And he actually refers there to other people who have been uh, the victims of these hand grenades and also those who don't know how to juggle them. And I'm starting to wonder if one of those people might have been you. (laughs) Well... It just might be. (laughs) He's not a real Brian Hogwood fan anymore. So, (laughs) Can I ask you, uh, that November 2018, earth-shattering Facebook post that you did on Dan Vogel's Facebook page. Mm -hmm. Have you heard anything from John Gee since then? No, no. Oh, really? The lines of communication have been cut? Yeah, we don't talk anymore. Yeah. Well, that's I, I I did contact. Carrie, because Carrie's actually a much more reasonable person, reasonable person than John is, at least in my interactions with him. Um, And I actually apologized to Carrie for using his name because I didn't feel like it was that I should have used names there, that if I just would have said that without the names, everybody, most anybody that knew about the Book of Abraham would know who I was talking about anyway. But, uh, and Carrie and I kind of smooth things over and I think it's okay. But, uh, but you know, that if there's one regret I have, it's that I use names there. Um, and I think I was in a, in a position in late 2018 where I'm looking at Dan's videos and he's using, he's lumping me in with these, these, with John and Carrie. And I'm just going, look, I, I have, I do not agree with these guys, you know? And so that, so it was almost a point of frustration that I put that post in there, you know, saying, let me just be on the record here that, you know, (laughs) I am not with these guys, you know, (laughs) don't lump me in as an outrageous scholar here, you know, Mm -hmm. because that's, that's Dan's word. And, And Dan Vogel, by the way, for my audience, in case there's any confusion, not Dan Peterson. Right. Dan Vogel. That's exactly right. And Dan Vogel understood that. I mean, and he and I had some contact after that post and, and he appreciated, you know, where I was coming from. Uh, and so, but the book is still out there, right? The, the textual history book is still out there. And so it's fair game for him to quote out of that and to disagree with it. And I respect that. Well, let me go Briefly into this John Gee, I just want to read the abstract of his review where he writes about your volume four, which you were editors on with Robin Jensen, the Joseph Smith Papers Project stumbles. I don't necessarily want to get your take or response to any of this because I think that would be getting a little bit too much in detail, but this will give the audience a flavor for what it is that he wrote. Abstract, volume four of the revelations and translation series of the Joseph Smith Papers does not live up to the standards set in previous volumes. While the production values are still top-notch, the actual content is substandard. Problems, (laughs) I'm sorry, problems fill the volume, including misplaced photographs and numerous questionable transcriptions beyond the more than 200 places where the editors admitted they could not read the documents. For this particular volume, Producing it incorrectly is arguably worse than not producing it at all. Oh, my gosh. So I think this is two thumbs down, way down, as far as John Key's review 
of this volume. And I read through this and I encourage the audience to do so too. I'm not going to read through the whole thing. There's at least two places where he's concerned that the audience might think that he's quibbling, but he assures them that he's not talking about all these little tiny details and why they're actually very, very important. It seems that his main beef was not being included more fully in the editorship of this volume. He states this later on in his review. He says, anything the editors say about Egyptian language, papyri, or characters is beyond their skill and training. Mm -hmm. it, it is regrettable that although the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints counts several faithful Egyptologists among its membership, i.e. me and Mulestein, the editors deliberately chose not to involve them in any serious way. So once again, this is John Gee saying that you and Robin, that you, Brian, and Robin did not choose to involve John Gee and Carrie Mulestein in any serious way. It is true, he goes on, it is true that two of that number, that's of course John Gee and Carrie Mulestein, it is true that two of that number were given a month to peer review the volume, and some of their suggestions were accepted, but no photographs were included in what was reviewed nor did the Egyptologists see the appendix on the Egyptian characters. Do you have a response to that? Sure. Yeah. Um, the characters were just taken, they were taken from the Abraham Egyptian papers. Okay. So we did exactly what just the papers are asking to do. So it wasn't a point of Egyptology. Everything that we did there that required Egyptology, we quoted from Egyptologists in the book. And, and it's true that we did not involve them because this is, these papers are not Egyptology papers, okay? If it was a book on the papyrus, well then yeah, we would have to include them, right? I don't even think I would write a book on the papyrus itself, of course not. But the book wasn't about the papyrus. It was about the Abraham Egyptian papers. And using the term Egyptian here means the, the Egyptian that the Joseph Smith and his scribes were coming up with, okay, which is not Egyptology and it's not Egyptian because they didn't know Egyptian. And so, so that's why we didn't include them because it wasn't, they weren't, uh, necessary for that particular part of the doc. We were documentary editors. That's all we were. We were, we were editing the documents, the Egyptian documents and the Abraham documents that we've been talking about. And that was our role. And you don't need Egyptologists to do that. You need documentary editors to do that. Is it true that uh, John Gee and Carrie Muelstein were given about a month to peer review the volume? Yes, I believe that's correct. Yeah, they were given a copy of, we sent out the manuscript to about I th I, almost two dozen people, okay, and got comments back from, from them. And so, so that review process did give them about a month, I think, to, to comb through the volume and to respond to it and to let us know, you know, their critiques. And so that, that is, and I think... If I'm not mistaken, I think they were paid for it too. Um, that, John Gee and Carrie Mulstein were paid for it? Yeah, that they were paid money to review this book in that month. And so, which tells me that 
that John Gee had his say in the book during the formal peer review process. He could have his say. He didn't have to come back later and publish something with interpreter that trashes the book. You following me? I he do, and paid. I want to person. He was paid to do a review for the book. Who is it that would have paid him? I guess the I guess the Joe Smith Papers Project paid him. I guess, and that's an official publication of the church, right? Yeah, it's an official publication of the church. So I guess those monies would come from ultimately it would come from the church. Okay, I understand. Now my take on it is this is that the reason that John Gee is really upset about it, and that comes through uh, very well in his review, the reason he's upset about it is mainly because of the position that you end up taking in your introduction, which is basically what we talked about earlier, which is that it looks like the text of the Book of Abraham was translated all, or was not translated all in 1835. Right, yeah, that's because we followed the historical journal evidence and we followed the textual evidence that also shows that the material in Nauvoo in the Book of Abraham is different than the material in 1835. And let me, let me just say this. Okay, in a book that's coming out, or I think it's out now, Producing Ancient Scripture that I'm part of, that project, it's a University of Utah Press. There's an article in there by Matthew Gray about Hebrew that shows up in the Nauvoo period that's transliterated. Okay, in other words, it's transliterated, meaning the Hebrew words themselves, uh, like uh, kolab or or maybe uh, the stars, you know, kokal beam, that kind of a thing. But those, the way it's transliterated follows the way that that Joseph learned about. Uh, Hebrew from his Hebrew teacher, Rabbi Joshua Satius, which would, which took place in early 1836. And he imports into the book of Abraham in eight, 1842, some of those Hebrew words, and he transcribes them to the same way that they're transcribed in Rabbi Satius's grammar book. Okay. So that was another indication that there was translation and that that part of the book of Abraham was produced in Nauvoo. Makes perfect sense to me. But once again, this goes against uh, John Gee's hobby horse that all the translation occurred in 1835. That's right. And so that automatically uh, smacks up against the whole missing papyrus theory. Right. So here's my question for you. John Key may have been seeing this review. By the way, he writes this review in the pages of The Interpreter. The editor of The Interpreter is Daniel Peterson, also a professor at BYU, correct? Right, yeah. And certainly at one time very much associated with farms. Yeah. Okay. So what was the response amongst the people at the Joseph Smith Papers Project to John Key's review? Well, they, they were not happy about it because, as I said earlier, they were as much a part of the production of that book as we were in many ways. Uh, they were the ones that went combed through the book. We produced drafts, of course, but then they'd comb through it. Many eyes looked at it. 
not just the transcriptions, but also all the data that we put in there, especially in the introduction, of course. You know, they combed over that. We went through that over and over again with them. And, and they, they were the ones that helped shape that book to the way it is. And so they took it very personal. This wasn't, this wasn't a snub just of, of Robin and I. This was a snub of the Joe Smith Papers Project. And so they were not happy about it. And since the Joseph Smith Papers Project is an official publication of the LDS Church, was the church happy about it? I wouldn't think so. No. My understanding is, and I'm not getting this firsthand, but my understanding is is that both John and Dan were called up and uh, talked to by some higher-level church person, um, maybe somebody with a higher level in the Joseph Smith Papers Project, maybe, maybe somebody higher. I don't know but they were told in no uncertain terms to back off and to write something to re- revise the revise John's article. That's what they were told to do. And then uh, one of the, I think the director of publications, I think also produced a rebuttal to John's uh, review in the interpreter. Do you know if that happened? It did happen, yes. It's in there. Oh, I must not have seen that. All I know is that I looked at the review that John Gee did, and at the bottom of it now, in the way that it's online, there is a an addendum, this note. It says, this review, this is at the end of John Gee's uh, review, this review was edited by the author after initial publication to address multiple requests for clarification. Yeah. That's how he's going to call it. Well, that's a nice way to put it. Well, I suppose so, since he's writing about his own article. In in part, he goes on, in part, these clarifications came after a substantive conversation between the author, that's himself, John Gee, and principal figures in the Joseph Smith Papers Project, period, end of addendum. There you go. Yeah. So they were called up. So let me say this also, because there's a comment that occurs uh, on the interpreter after this article by a person named Fred Smith, who I think we've already talked about, and you don't know who this is. Right. I don't. Okay. Well, he's responding to a comment by, I think it was Brant. I don't know which Brant it was, but let me go on to this. This is what he says. So he appears to have some inside knowledge, which is corroborative of what you say. These are the corrections that John Gee made in his article, which appear to have been pretty much cosmetic, not really that substantive. This is what Fred Smith says. Dr. Gee only removed one sentence, slightly revised another, and all other changes were simply additions to the review that indicate Dr. Gee is further responding to the ongoing conversations he has had requesting him to stop. So there, these conversations appear to be from people higher up in the Joseph Smith Papers Project, maybe higher up than that in Salt Lake, telling him to knock it off, right? requesting him to stop. This comment goes on about, John Gee, he's still trying to redefine the Joseph Smith Papers Project into something it is not. This version, especially, this version of his uh, review apparently, this version, especially if taken seriously, would mean that Dr. Gee and Dr. Muelstein should have been the editors of the volume, which comes across as a desire of Dr. Gee's in the review. Even though the entire purpose of the series is to focus on the production of handwritten or printed material under the direct supervision of Joseph Smith, Jr., It is unfortunate, Fred Smith concludes, it is unfortunate that Interpreter has decided to delete previous comments, 
when some of them have been important to ongoing conversations. I sincerely hope that this one makes it through the vetting process. Well, apparently his comment did make it through the vetting process, and that's what Fred Smith had to say on the subject. Anything you want to add to that? No, I think Fred said it well, actually. He said it very well. Well, John Gee has written a number of books related to the book of Abraham. I don't know that any of them have been peer-reviewed. In fact, I suspect they have not. But well, he wrote, the, go ahead. He would, he would disagree with that, of course. I mean, they were peer-reviewed in-house, certainly. They have their own reviewers that they would send his stuff to. That's, that's true. But John Gee is the guy who knows more than anybody else about Egyptology within that group, correct? Well, that's, that's exactly right. <laughs> Therefore, he kind of gets to be his own peer review, and everybody else has to think, well, if John Gee says it, then it must be correct. That's pretty much it. Yeah, he's the authority. Well, he published a book called An Introduction to the Book of Abraham, in which he sets forth some of his counter theories, basically, once again, arguing what amounts to, under more in-depth analysis, to the missing papyrus. Theory. An introduction to the book of Abraham published in October of 2017. I understand he gave you a personalized copy of that. Yes, he did. No, he didn't give me a copy. I bought it and just had him autograph it. Oh, really? What? You bought it. And so he autographed it for you. What did he say, Pretel? He said, I hope you'll find something worthwhile between these covers. <laughs> He, he hopes that you will find something worthwhile between the covers of his book? Yeah. Well, let's go back a little bit on this, uh, this volume. And I know we're, we're over time now. We're actually two hours, a little bit more than that, into it. Do you have a little bit more time for us? Sure. You bet. Okay. So you knew that he was writing his book, An Introduction to the Book of Abraham, correct? I found out about it, yes. Not from him, though. And that's prior to the publication. Yeah, this was prior to the publication. What did you do? Well, I just, I talked to the, to the, he was actually the RSC, Religious Studies Center, BYU Religious Studies Center, uh, publishing director. And I just found, somehow I found out that he was putting this book together. And I just felt like I wanted to take a look at it and see if, if I peer reviewed it if John would be, be able to listen to me and, and uh, incorporate some changes. Because <clears throat> I knew what he was going to do with it, of course. What was All he going to do with it, of course? Well, he was going to push the same line of thinking that we've been talking about all along here. Okay. Ultimately, pushing forth the missing papyrus theory and, and other theories that, that support that. Um, and, and so... So the director sent me the files and I went through and I, of course, found all the things that I, I was concerned about. And, and as I said at the beginning of this episode, you know, I, 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 I have a real problem with misinformation or omitting information and these kinds of things because the reader is the one who gets, gets hurt by all this. Um, and so I really was hoping to tr and to try and, and make this a better book. Uh, can, you tell us, can you tell us about a certain footnote that you found, I think it was on page five, in which John Gee attempts to conflate two separate sources in order to make it sound like 
Joseph Smith translated the book of Abraham from a really, really long scroll. Yeah, John, John's been on this idea of, a, of the witness, eyewitness accounts of a long scroll having the book of Abraham on them. And let me back up just for a second. I'm sorry. I, I'm known for uh, beating dead horses, but I want to make it really clear that John Gee wants it to be a really long scroll so that what we have left of it with the facsimile one on it can be a small portion of a really long scroll. And therefore, on the missing portion of this really long scroll can be in Egyptian, the actual text of the book of Abraham. That's right. Yes. Okay, go ahead, Professor. And that's, and that's the argument he, he tries to make in the book as well, of course. Um, so you kind of got me off, off, uh, page, page five, bottom footnote, two sources. Yeah. Yeah. So there's two sources. Maybe you could read, he's got them categorized into four, all the papyri categorized into four different parts, but it's the second part that's really important. Could you read that? Well, I didn't buy his book. I was <laughs> I I didn't have the money that you had to buy his book. I have to use it for books that are written by scholars I respect like you. <laughs> well, I appreciate that. But uh here's, me either. Here's the main point that I want to make. Other people can look at it. Uh there are two in the footnote, right? There are two different sources by two different purported eyewitnesses to the scrolls. Now, once again, he wants to give forth the idea that the scroll from which Joseph Smith translated the book of Abraham was really, really, really long. We've already gone over why he wants that. It's the missing papyrus theory all over again. And so, therefore, he takes one quote from one witness that says, Joseph Smith, trans I saw him translate from the papyrus that, was, uh, that held the book of Abraham, right? Okay, let, let me back you up for just a second here. Yeah. Okay, so he's got the two sources there, okay? And he quotes from, the first source is uh, Charlotte Haven, who uh, Joseph Smith's mother, okay, gives a tour to, to uh, Charlotte and a, and a group of, uh, amongst a group of people, and she shows some papyri to these people, Lucy does, and and then um, Charlotte makes the point that she rolled out this longer roll, and and that was it. Okay, she just rolled out this longer roll, and then the, the source goes on and saying that she read from it, you know, and because of Joe Smith and all this kind of stuff. But John only says that she, that she describes it as a long roll. That's all he says. Then there's another source that he quotes from. And this is all part of basically the same sentence, okay? Another one, Jerusha Blanchard. <clears throat> and by the way, both, both sources appear later on. Like, like uh, Charlotte Havens appears in like 1890, I think it is. But she was talking about letters that she wrote during the time she was in Nauvoo in 1842. And then, or in 43, I can't remember exactly when. And then Jerusha Blanchard's talking about being a young girl playing tag with another friend in a room uh, that they see, she describes, there's a roll on one of the mummies that the Book of Abraham was translated from. And that one was published in 1920, okay? But the Charlotte Haven quote doesn't say that the Book of Abraham is on the long roll. And the and the, and the uh, Jerusha Blanchard quote doesn't say 
that the book of Abraham is on a long roll. <laughs> okay? <laughs> so, so as he just conflates those two to make it look like they're both talking about the book of Abraham, talking about the book of Abraham being on a long roll, even though the Charlotte Haven one doesn't mention the book of Abraham, okay, being on a long roll. And the, the Jerusha Blanchard one doesn't mention that the book of Abraham on that particular role was a long role. Right. So we've got two completely different sources, if I'm understanding correctly, one of which, and they're both late and some are hearsay. One's hearsay, the other one's uh, late. But um, talking about, one talks about a long role, and it doesn't say anything about um, the book of Abraham being translated from it. And of course, long is completely relative. I mean, how does a little girl know what a long role would be to an Egyptologist? But she mentioned major or something, I think at the time. Yeah. But but she mentions a long role with nothing else mentioned. Then this other person, separate witness, completely unrelated mentions. uh, I think it was Lucy. Was it saying that this is the role from which Joseph translated Jerusha Blanchard, Jerusha. Thank you. Uh, translating the book of Abraham from this scroll. But that source doesn't say it was a long scroll, correct? No, it does not. So now in a footnote, actually in the body of the book, John Gee just simply makes the blanket statement that Joseph Smith translated the book of Abraham from a long scroll. Yeah. And then he gives a footnote in which he gives both these sources, neither of which say that conclusion. And then he puts them together in the footnote in one sentence in order to make it by hook or by crook, support his argument. That's exactly right, yeah. And the reason I wanted to get in the details about this is because this is an example of what it is you're talking about, about John Gee hiding evidence, being uh, playing fast and loose with the evidence, and not even going along with the evidence in order to support his theories. That's exactly right. So that's why he says, the eyewitnesses say that the book of Abraham was translated from a long roll. Now you know where he gets that from and how he did that, how he comes to that. That's the trick. That's the devil in the details. That's the devil in the details right there. Well, it seems that John Gee may have thought that you were involved in an attempt to suppress his book, an introduction to the book of Abraham, because it didn't come out as quickly as he thought it should come out from the publishers. Were you aware of this? I was aware that it was getting close to publication, and I'm also aware that I slowed him down a bit, but I did not suppress it. I wasn't trying to get it so that it wasn't going to be published because that was already a done done deal. It was accepted for publication. Mm. I just wanted to be able to have some, some, uh, some input to maybe encourage John to be a little bit more open and honest about all this stuff. By the way, before I go on to this part about the suppression, did you redline that particular footnote for John? I think I, I think I did. Yeah. Did it, but it, he didn't change it for no, publication. No. no. Okay. The reason I say this about John Gee uh, <laughs> is because he, his most recent book was called Saving Faith, which was kind of a hit piece on the Jana Reese book. But his most recent book was called Saving Faith, and he announced it on his blog. John Gee has his own blog. It's three foreign words. I don't know what they are, but it says foreign spol fira, which may or may not be translated into the ancient tale of man because he has that on his uh, banner right underneath those three words. I guess it's very fashionable for scholars to have foreign words in the title of their blogs. I know that Dan Peterson has sick at non. 
Right. But the ancient tale of man, John Gee's blog for Tuesday, May 5th, 2020, in which he announces his new book. This is what he says, and I'm quoting John Gee here. Almost three and a half years ago, my book, An Introduction to the Book of Abraham, was announced by Deseret Book. When it was announced, a certain individual, and I'm looking at you, Brian. (laughs) When it was announced, a certain individual or group of individuals launched a campaign to have the book suppressed. This delayed the release of the book a number of months. It was over a year from the announcement of the book to its actual release. To forestall something similar happening, I have waited to announce my new book, Saving Faith, until it has actually come off the press. Yeah, there's no chance that he would ever send, that I would even want to read that second book because it has nothing to do with anything. You know, it's it's not the book of Abraham. I was worried about, you know, what he was going to say about the book of Abraham, and I can let other people, other experts pick, pick through this second book and find, I'm sure, other kinds of problems. I'm, I'm quite, I'm quite uh, certain would be there, but, uh, but yeah, that's, that is me. He's probably talking about me there that I suppressed his previous book, but I didn't depress it or suppress it. I just wanted to be a, a peer reviewer. The thing is, Farms had such a foothold on on publications uh, and i was i have been blacklisted from being a peer reviewer for anything related to the book of abraham for years and years now um john welch never consulted me for any articles on the book of abraham that were put out um farms never did anything the, that were published in the journal book of mormon studies nothing that John or Carrie did was ever passed by me because I'm not an Egyptologist, you see. And so it's as simple as that. Wow. Okay. And that, by the way, I have to mention that as well, that John Gee keeps harping on this idea that only people who have degrees in Egyptology are qualified to speak in any regard about the book of Abraham. Yeah, that's right. Which says that he thinks that Egyptology is provides all the answers we need for the book of Abraham controversies. Right. And he's joined in that dismissive position by Dan Peterson as well, because when Dan Peterson posted about this issue on his blog, sick at non. And when I say posted about the issue, I mean, posting about the inter, excuse me, the interpreter article by John Gee, the hit piece on your book that you were editor of that we've talked about before. Dan Peterson says, am I supposed to care a lot about what Brian Howglid thinks on this matter? No, it was about your volume four, right? Am I supposed to care a lot about what Brian Howglid thinks on this matter? If so, why? Because perhaps of his Egyptological expertise? Right. There it is. You see, that, that's, the, that's, that's what they can pull out. That's the club they can pull out. And later on, he posts another comment, which is similar. I don't actually care whether Brian Howglid is or isn't an Egyptologist, which I have to laugh when I read because obviously he cares a lot. And then he, he adds in parentheses, he's not, of course. You're not an Egyptologist. I have at least four Egyptological friends. If I have Egyptological questions, I go to them. Right. <laughs> the problem is, is that when it comes to the Abraham Egyptian papers, they have nothing to do with Egyptology. 
Right. I understand that. And I hope my listeners understand that by now, because you have explained that. I'm just showing that Daniel Peterson shares this position of... Yeah. And, and you know, I Dan and I go way back. I mean, he was he was on the on my dissertation committee. And so we go way back. Uh, and so I've been a little surprised that he's been saying things like that. But, uh, but, you know, in his mind, he's right. You know, I'm not an Egyptologist, but his assumption that it takes an Egyptologist to, to do what I did is wrong. Well, can I ask you a question? Mm-hmm. I'm willing to bet that Dan Peterson was more than willing to accept your opinion on a variety of issues, including Egyptian issues as they relate to the Egyptian Abraham documents until your opinion started to diverge from the apologetic position. Yeah, that's, that's the, that there's the rub right there. You know, once I started departing from the standard position, okay, that we've already talked about the miss that's that culminates in the missing papyrus theory. Um, once I started going against that, it, it was over for me. I no longer had their confidence. Right. And I know that um, it seems to me at least that John Gee has a bit of a double standard here because he simply lionizes Hugh Nibley in his work on the Egyptian when Hugh Nibley, of course, was not an Egyptologist either. He was an amateur who studied some, but certainly had no degree. And he would be the first to admit that. Uh, Hugh Nibley? Yeah. Right. Oh, absolutely he would. And I think he did that in a number of his papers. But now, by the way, I've got to go back to John Gee's. We're getting close to the end here, just so you know. John Gee's blog, because under date of January 30th, 2017, by the way, let me back up here just a second. If you want to see those comments from Dan Peterson. It's on his blog from November 8th, 2018, titled Joseph Smith Papers Project and the Book of Abraham. Unless he deletes them, you'll be able to find those comments that he made regarding uh, you not being an Egyptologist, so why does he care what you think? Okay, now going back to John Gee's blog, January 30th, 2017, titled The Eagle and the Sparrow, where he refers to you, but he doesn't name you, right? But he refers to you, and he refers to an encounter he says he had with you regarding the subject of Hugh Nibley. Let me go ahead and read the first two uh, paragraphs of this, okay? Okay. And then you can give us the straight scoop. Hugh Nibley once said, and I am quoting from memory, 20 sparrows do not make an eagle. He followed that up by noting that if you consult 20 people, each of whom knows a little about Latin or mathematics, it is not, it is not the same as consulting one person who knows a great deal about those subjects. Now here's the line. I was thinking about this the other day after someone dismissed an argument simply because Nibley had made it. And now it goes on and it lionizes uh, Nibley all over the place without ever mentioning who the person was, what the argument was about, or what the position was that Nibley was uh, maintaining. But this is just the next paragraph. In the first place, the dismissal by you-know-who The dismissal was simply a classic case of what is commonly, but wrongly, called an ad hominem argument. You dismiss an argument because of who made it, rather than any intrinsic part of the argument itself. The irony was that the individual who thus dismissed an argument made by Nibley 
effects to decry ad hominem arguments. I have to laugh at that because you already told us about that, right? Mm -hmm. About the ad hominem arguments that you didn't like farms making and why it was that you went with um, Gerald Bradford in his position and approved of it and continued it in moving it toward a more scholarly endeavor. But he says that this person who's you affects to decry ad hominem arguments. When people do this, he says, when people do this, their intellectual hypocrisy makes it difficult to take them seriously. So, <laughs> you are an intellectual hypocrite, Brian. This is what John Gee wants to tell you. Did you read this when it came out, by the way? I probably did, yeah, but somebody invited me to it, I think. I'm sure. Uh, I wouldn't have come upon it except somebody clued me into it. Um, <laughs> and this is part of my background research for today's podcast. Do you even remember what this comment was about, this discussion about some kind of argument that Nibley had made and you talking about this with John Gee? Three years ago? Well, yeah, I, I, I think I remember the gist of it. I certainly don't remember castigating Nibley at all, okay, as a person or as a scholar. I think I merely was trying to point out that the missing papyrus theory is not, it, it's outdated and based on more recent research that I had been doing and, and a couple of others, um, that the missing papyrus theory wasn't as solid as as he's saying that it is in his book. And so I might have said something like that the missing papyrus theory that Nibley initially put forth is outdated. And it is outdated in the sense that, um, you know, even John himself has added to the theory, okay, to the missing papyrus theory and come up with his own, uh, his own take on this. And so, so referring back to Nibley, you know, is probably not as good as referring to himself in some ways, you know, that he's done work on this, on this missing papyrus theory. But he does, he goes back and he quotes Nibley. And so I just said something to the effect that Nibley's thinking here may be a little outdated. And he took that as that I was, you know, doing ad hominem against Nibley himself, which I was not, okay? It's not the way I do things, um, unless I'm being an intellectual hypocrite, I guess. But <laughs> <laughs> Well, when you put it in context, then I understand that John Gee feels that it's own, his own personal ox of the missing papyrus theory that's getting gored by what you say. So now he's going to turn around and characterize it as you dismissing the argument simply because Hugh Nibley made it and then spend the rest of his blog post lionizing Hugh Nibley and lambasting you. Right. Yeah, that's exactly right. That's and this his, is his own hat ad hominem, right? Yes. Well, <laughs> ironically, yes. And this is how he concludes his blog post. Some of Nibley's critics, like Ryan Howard, no, some of Nibley's critics strike me as much more incompetent than Nibley. Perhaps I am, and then he says, perhaps I am just not competent to tell. Ooh, that stuff just makes me wince. Perhaps I am just not competent to tell. This is actually the same kind of crap that farms used to do. You know what I mean? They mm -hmm. got them sidelined in a new direction, implemented. Right. Perhaps, perhaps I am just not competent to tell. For me, if Nibley made an argument, that is reason to consider it seriously and judge it on its merits. For people to dismiss an argument on the grounds that Nibley made it could arguably be a reason not to take them seriously. Well, there you go. There's the... That's the punch right there. Yes, the knife is in, and now we're twisting it. Right, yep. 
Oh my gosh. Okay. So I just wanted to uh, stroll down memory lane with you on that particular article and give you a chance to respond to it, to all the many millions who actually read it and remember it. Right. Yeah, that's right. Well, it's just like I said, it was never intended to be that, you know, Nibley who I was castigating there. I was just focusing in on the missing papyrus theory. Um, and arguing against that, not just Nibley. Nibley, yes, he made that argument, of course, but but I felt like John was just not being totally forthright mm-hmm. with with what he with what he was really doing, okay, behind the scenes there. He's always in this subterfuge mode, you know. Mm-hmm. I just wanted him to be more open and honest. Um, if if he would have written that book, you know, uh, as a a book where he's really really considering other points of view, then my work would have been in there, right? Mm-hmm. But that's not what the book is about. It's a John book, and it's putting forth John's thoughts, and only John can do it, and nobody can equal John. Therefore, there's no reason for him to have any other points of view in the book, right? Well, you've got a new art. By the way, before I go on to this new article you have in the book that just finally hit the presses and is out now, um, uh-huh. anything else to say about your career uh, interactions with uh, John Gee, Carrie Mulestein, Dan Peterson, anybody else that my audience might find of interest? Uh, well, not that comes to mind. I mean, I certainly hope I'm not coming across as being ad hominem against any of those people. Um, I just I go with the arguments. I, I try to I try to isolate you know what they're trying to do, the arguments they're trying to make, and if something doesn't look right, if something smells rotten in Denmark, so to speak, well then I'm going to call them on that. Right? That's what we do. I mean, if I've got something out there that's really poor scholarship, then I would expect it's going to get figured out by somebody. Um, and so so I don't didn't want any of that to come across that I that, you know, I'm speaking evil of the Lord's anointed. (laughs) (laughs) Or of the Lord himself. Or of the Lord himself. That's exactly right. Yeah, that's not my purpose at all to do that. And I've had lots of interactions with these people over the years. And, and, you know, some some of what they say or do, even in the background, you know, some of that hurts. But, you know, what do you do? Oh, by the way, before I forget, did John Gee get you in trouble with your bishop? Well, I don't know if it was John John Gee himself, but um, after all this this, uh, review stuff came out on on Robin and I's book, or should I say Joe Smith Paper's book, um, you know, I did get called into the bishop because my worthiness, my membership was brought into question on some of those discussions uh, accusing me of being apostate and such. And I've seen it happen before where, where somebody gets, uh, you know, some, they, they, they get somebody in their sites in their crosshairs and they write an article about it. And then that person ends up in the Bishop's office. I've seen that happen before. And I did end up in the Bishop's office and, and the Bishop, uh, who I very much like and respect, um, he just, he's, he actually called me to a calling. 
So that's what I thought it was about. And then at the very end, he leaned back in his chair. So he said, oh, there's just one more thing. Uh, there's been some conversations about, about you and the book of Abraham and you, you not being, and I could tell he was trying to not come right out and say it, but, you know, kind of questioning my faith, that kind of thing. And, and I just reassured him that it was, these were academic disagreements, you know, had nothing to do with, with faith and those kinds of things. Uh, and so he, he was totally fine with that. I mean, he, you know, he was like, okay, no problem. Let's, let's go. And so that's all that was really. So I wasn't grilled or anything or, you know, under the bright lamp interrogation or anything like that. Um, it was just a, just, just like I described it, just a short little meeting. That's all it was. Well, uh, at some point prior to that, did John Gee call into question your ability to hold a temple recommend? Well, I had, uh, I had been on a panel over at Utah Valley University with Brian Birch, and, and he was the one that kind of organized it. And there were a few others on the panel. Um, and we were talking about the future of Mormon apologetics. And of course, John was out in the audience. And, and so he wrote another blog on that. And this time he actually named those of us he wanted to name and I, mine included and said that we weren't worthy to have a temple recommend or something like that. And so, so yeah, he was questioning my faith long before, you know, this other, this, these reviews of my book came out. So, uh, which were questioning my faith as well. So, <laughs> so, so that, that's basically the size of it. So that's what launches John Gee into the area of persons of interest when it comes to I'm trying to figure yeah. out who it was who forwarded this information on helpfully to your bishop. I just knew that that was their modus operandi. That's the way they worked. That they, they had people up at Salt Lake that they could contact and, and that could call my bishop and say, you know, you need to call Brian and just find out how he's doing faith-wise or whatever. And, you know, I don't know if they sent him anything. Obviously, he knew, the bishop knew it was on the Book of Abraham. So, you know, that was certainly part of it uh, when he was contacted. Because I don't, I don't even think he knew that I was even involved with Book of Abraham studies, you know, before that. So <laughs> somebody had to alert him, right? <laughs> mm -hmm. Didn't come out of nowhere. I don't think he's following all this. No, he's not. He's a bishop and they're, you know, they're, they've got plenty on their plate. So anyway, uh, so I just knew that when it was happening, especially once he brought up the book of Abraham, that I immediately thought of, of uh, somebody from farms calling up to Salt Lake and saying I should be called in to my bishop. So, yeah, it's like on Seinfeld where he goes, Newman. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> Except you're going, John Gee. Yeah, well, that's who I think of first, of course, but I'd have no actual evidence that he's the person. We have no idea. We're not making any allegations here. And if John Gee wants to go on record and deny it, he's welcome to do so. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Uh, but it could have been a number of people over there. So, mm. 
a number of people that know how to do that kind of thing. Professor, before we go, I've got to ask you this because a lot of my listeners want to know, what is your view now on the book of Abraham as scripture or uh, revelation? Well, um, I look at the book of Abraham and when you see this article that I wrote in this producing ancient scripture book, you'll see that I, I feel like anyway, that I've got pretty good argument, pretty strong argument that, that at least the, the Egyptian papers were used for some of the book of Abraham, especially in the first chapter and for some of the explanations of facsimile too. Uh, and so and I, I argue, I think, I think pretty well, I don't know. We'll see what happens, but, uh, um, but I think that, that there's no question that what we're seeing happening with the book of Abraham is, is more of a process of Joseph Smith intellectually and I suppose spiritually. And I can't gauge that at all, of course, the spiritual part, but I can gauge the intellectual part. And there is certainly intellectual engagement going on with the book of Abraham that comes out in these papers. And I just think it's, it's pretty undeniable in a lot of ways. Um, of course, for every scholar, there's, you know, there's no such thing as an ironclad theory, but I think it's pretty strong theory. How's that? And so do I look at it as scripture? I look at it as, as Joseph Smith. I guess I, I follow some of the thinking on, the book of, of Abraham, especially chapters one and three, as being mostly Joseph Smith produced. Um, and then I look at Abraham chapters two, four, and five, as I look at I look at as biblically produced, but but uh, tweaked by Joseph Smith, and and so I look at it as a nineteenth century production, and and. Uh, do I look at it as, as a true revelation, that kind of thing? Well, on the one hand, you can say Joseph Smith followed the injunction that's in DNC 9 to study it out and then get the revelation after. So in, in that sense, you can say that. In the other sense, if you don't believe that Joseph Smith was a prophet, then you've got plenty of evidence for that as well. Uh, where you're not going to be able to gauge the spiritual dimension of it. And so for me, I look at it as a 19th century production. I don't believe that it's uh, uh, an ancient book of Abraham that, you know, Abraham actually wrote. I think it's a product of Joseph Smith. And I think we have enough evidence to, in my view anyway, to show that. And and uh, much like the Book of Mormon, I think about the Book of Mormon as well as a 19th century text. And so, and that's probably not going to be news to a lot of people, I would think. But it, but it does complicate your faith, doesn't it? I mean, and my, my relationship with the church right now is complicated. It's, it's complex um, in terms of, you know, I've, I've studied all the historical stuff that many have studied and gone into faith, faith uh, crises type things. And I've also got lots of uh, critiques and problems with 
the church's uh, stand on social issues like the LGBTQ population and such. And I don't agree with the church with a lot of those kinds of things. And I look at the church as being man-made in a lot of ways now. Um, And so, and quite frankly, I I don't know how many people are going to listen to your program, but, you know, I've, I've, I've stepped away from the church in some ways. Uh, I still go with my wife uh, to soccer meeting, but I haven't, I haven't gone to many of the other meetings for a long time. So, um, so I'm just, I'm kind of, I guess, a true confessor here in some ways, because I know people have questions about that. I wouldn't say that I'm apostate. Okay. I would say I'm a heretic. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. More like a Sterling McMurrin. I have associations with the church. I don't claim to, I don't want to convince people to leave the church. Uh, There's things about the church I don't like uh, that I think should be corrected. But, uh, but in my mind, anyway, I'm not an apostate. I'm not trying to lead people away from the church. I have no agenda in any way, shape, or form to do that. People have their own personal journeys, their own personal faith journeys. And, and on the other side, I think the church does a lot of good as well for people, for humanity. Uh, maybe they could do more. Maybe they could spend more. They certainly have a lot of money, don't they? Uh, and so... So, but, you know, this is what, this is what many in your audience, I think, have experienced and I think can relate to. Uh, And so I have a cordial relationship with the church. I meet it on my own terms. I support my wife's uh, faith and my kids' faith, and I would never do anything to to injure or harm them in any way. Uh, And that's because it's your own personal faith journey. If you're going to come to a realization of something, you know, you need to, you need to work through it yourself. And, uh, and I know I've been, I've triggered some faith transitions. I'm sure I have, Uh, but I've never, uh, you know, gone out to purposely try to lead people away from the church. And I don't think you do that either. Um, I don't think that's what you try to do either. you just, you know, we just try to 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 uh, speak the truth, right? We just try to to find the good in everything that we can that we can. And so, but it's been a long journey for me. The last third of my my employment, my career has been tough to say the least. But uh, but I still have people that I care about in the department. Uh, with people who I've collaborated with, who I would never want to to uh, hurt or or uh, embarrass in any way possible, and so so I'm just on my journey. This is what's happening with me, and that it reflects my own views on things, and that's basically where I'm at. Well, thank you very much for that, and thank you for taking what has ended up being about three hours of your day to spend with me and my audience, Professor Howglid. Wow, that's a long time. I'm going to put people to sleep out there. Use it as an aphrodisiac, I guess. (laughs) An aphrodisiac? You might have to edit that out. (laughs) 
Please edit that out. <laughs> oh, no, that's staying in. I'm going to lord that one over you forever. This is going to be a running gag. Radio Free Mormon is an aphrodisiac, folks. That's what <laughs> Professor Howlett says. Isn't it? So there's a couple... There's a couple meanings to that, right? I'm only aware of one. Which one is that? <laughs> well, you remember the Leiden manuscript, the Leiden papyri? Uh-huh. What was that again? That was the love charm. Bingo. Okay, so not aphrodisiac, but what is it that causes you to go to sleep? Well, I'm not sure, but I bet it starts with somno. Yeah, something somno. How about a soporific? I, I don't know. I guess so. Soporific even... would fit that. Okay. Well, then let's use that term then. It's a sleeping pill for you. How's that? No, I don't like that That's as much. We're going to go with your first answer. <laughs> that, that they're going to love this, right? <laughs> oh, I hope so. <laughs> Pardon the pun. Again, they're going to love this. They're going to totally love this. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Professor Hauglet, it has been an absolute joy to have you on the program. Thank you for the compliment as well about it being an aphrodisiac. And I'm going to let you get on with your day now. Is that okay? Well, thank you very much, RFM. I hope, uh, I hope that people enjoy what we've been talking about. So, Oh, they will. Believe me, they will. <laughs> Trust me on this one. This is going to go through the roof, ratings-wise. By the way, among my listeners, please share this episode with your friends, with your family, with the guy walking down the street. Share this with everybody you know. This is huge, and I think that my listeners understand how huge this is, Professor Halkwood. Once again, thank you for being a guest here on Radio Free Mormon today. And thank you, RFM. I really appreciate it. You are so welcome. That's about all for tonight. Until next time, this is Radio Free Mormon, signing off the air. <laughs> <laughs>